think so. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Committee for Communities on Thursday, the 1st of July. Um, sitting in the chair today is myself, Kelly Armstrong, Deputy Chair. Our Chair, Paula Bradley, will be joining us later in the meeting. She's just sent an apology for lateness this morning. Um, members, um, just to advise you then, I'm sitting on my own here in, in room 29. All the rest of you are coming in via Starleaf. So just to confirm, the following members are present in person. Kelly Armstrong, Deputy Chair. And the following members are attending via Starleaf at this stage. Andy Allen, Mark Durkin, Sinead Ennis, Karen Mullen, Fran McCann, and that's us so far. Um, declarations of interests. If any members have a requirement to declare any interest they may have in relation to items under discussion today, you can do so now or at the time. Uh, members, are we aware of any apologies for today's meeting? Or Clark? I think uh, Alex Easton and Pam Cameron will be a bit late. So Alex Easton and Pam Cameron for lateness. Um, that's noted. Um, members, you've been provided, uh, going on to Chairperson's Business Agenda Item 2 now, members, you've been provided at page 5 with a memo from the, P memo from the PAC clerk in relation to the primacy over reports of the Northern Ireland Audit Office. The Permanent Secretary of the Department for Communities and the Chief Executive, Executive sorry, of Sport NI will appear before PAC at its next meeting on the 8th of July. After last week's meeting, um, the clerk requested and got confirmation from the clerk of the Public Accounts Committee that it would be possible for this committee to feed into the PAC considerations um, regarding the Sports Sustainability Fund by sending a letter highlighting members' concerns on some of the issues. Members, um, if you have views um, or any particular issues that you want to raise with the Public Accounts Committee for their consideration. Um, do you want to have the discussion on that now? And we can then draft a letter and send it forward to the PAC. So any thoughts on that, members? Chair. Sinead. Sinead, yes, hi. Yeah, um, would it be more preferable if uh, individual committee members fed their views into the PAC directly? As opposed to, I'm not sure if we'll reach a consensus decision on it, maybe here, the committee. Okay, um, certainly can do that, um, because I imagine um, with PAC they will be looking for parties to feed in, so that would certainly be worthwhile to do so. So just checking then to see if the committee wants to send anything in itself. We will have an opportunity after the PAC have completed their um, investigations for us to... Um, talk to the Department and to Sport NI about that at a later stage. So are the committee then content that... Sorry? Oh, sorry, Andy. Yeah, sorry, Chair. It's, it, it's Mark here. No, I, I don't disagree with what Sinead has suggested around individual members or parties uh, making representations, and, and it might be difficult to get a consensus of sorts from committee. Uh, uh, however, I, I do think what's most important is that PAC are able to get on with, with their work, you know, and we look forward to, to, to seeing what they make make of the whole thing. Yep. Um, Andy, did you want to come in as well? 
Yes, yes, Chair, uh, and I agree with previous members there. It's important that we feed into this inquiry um, from PAC, but I think it would be also useful that we as a committee provide a timeline and detail to the PAC um, exactly what we were aware of when and, and our involvement in the wider scheme. I think that would be useful for them. Okay, so um, I'll just check with members. Uh, members, are you content then we go back through the information that was provided by the department on the Sports Sustainability Fund just to detail the timeline um, of what the committee's involvement was or what we knew about the Sports Sustainability Fund um, during the pandemic? Yeah. 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 Um, so I mean, just, all that information is in the public realm anyway. Absolutely. It's just um, if we can help the PAC with their considerations, I think we should do that. So as a committee, then we'll agree to draft a letter just to provide to the PAC information on what the committee were aware of and briefed on. And as Sinead says, it's in the public domain anyway, um, through minutes and, and through um, Hansard. Um, so we'll do that then. Yep. Thank you, members. Um, Members, as a courtesy, the department officials have agreed um, to brief us today on amendments to the local government meetings and performance bill. Members have been provided with this with table papers on this issue, and we will have Julie Broadway and Anthony Carlton um, joining us today to give that briefing. Um, members, if you're ready to do so, you can see the papers there in your table pack. Um, Julie and Anthony, thank you very much for coming along to see us again today. You're very welcome. Um, Julie, I'll not keep you back um, if you want to um, proceed with your briefing, please. Okay, and thank, we'd like to thank the committee for agreeing for us to brief them um, today about the Minister's tabled amendments for further consideration stage. Uh, the Minister has tabled a new clause too and has also tabled some consequential amendments to what had been Clause 5. Um, the proposed new clause, which will replace former Clause 2, will, would allow my, uh, the Minister's Department by subordinate legislation to further extend, if it was considered necessary, the ability of councils to hold remote or uh, hybrid meetings post-March 2022 when the Coronavirus Act expires. Um, it would also allow uh, the department to provide councils on a more permanent basis with flexibility to hold hybrid or remote meetings should this be considered desirable at some future date. And of course, our intention would be to fully engage with councils on any proposals to extend the remote meetings provisions and to gather evidence from councils of their experience over the past year of holding remote or hybrid meetings. If I can just then outline the main differences between the new clause and what had been clause two. Uh, the new clause focuses on the particulars around providing councils with the ability to hold remote meetings. Uh, it also makes it clear that any regulations made under it would be for the purposes of facilitating remote or hybrid meetings and not to permit the department to make more general amendments uh, to the provisions on meetings contained within the 2014 Local Government Act, which had never been our intention. Uh, also, the level of uh, assembly scrutiny for any regulations made under the clause has been changed to draft affirmative rather than the negative procedure, so they couldn't be made unless laid in draft and approved by the assembly. Um, as I mentioned last week, following the removal of uh, previous clause two, 
if this revised clause um, isn't approved by the Assembly, it will mean the Department would have no means of further extending the provisions on remote meetings beyond March 2022 or earlier should the Coronavirus Act be suspended earlier than that, other than by primary legislation. And as Assembly elections are due next year, and there's already, I think, a packed legislative timetable, it would be highly unlikely that further primary legislation could be made during this mandate. This could then leave a further gap in cover for remote meetings for councils, should this be necessary, uh, because of, for example, any further upsurge in coronavirus or new variants. Uh, so then turning to the Minister's other amendments for further consideration stage, the Minister has tabled a number of minor amendments to Clause 3, uh, which was previously Clause 5, and these are required as a consequence of the removal of Clause 5.2 at consideration stage. They really tidy up references to the financial year 2022-23 and also references to the clause applying for more financial, for more than one financial year. So happy to take any questions. Thank you very much, Julie, um, and thank you very much for responding to um, the concerns. Members, I'm going to open it to the floor um, because I know that there, there were concerns. We've seen the amendments now um, and I'll just ask any of our members if they want to indicate by raising their hand. Let us know if you want to speak or come in. might be easier maybe if I go round the room in alphabetical order. So, Andy Allen, have you any questions for the members today or for the officers today? Oh, sorry. Sorry. Apologies. Can we bring the members back in just so they can raise questions? And members, if you could raise your hand if you want to come in. I'm not as professional as this as Paula is <laughs> normally, <laughs> but I'll, I'll raise it again. Andy, have you anything you wish to ask um, Julie or Anthony today? Not this piece, okay. Thank you. Um, Mark? Mark Dargan? Uh, thank you, Chair. And, and thank you, Julie. Sorry, just for a wee bit of clarity So this is to allow beyond, I suppose, the life of the Coronavirus Act, yes. the Department to work with councils, not impose on councils, but work with councils to allow them to you know, flexibility in how they hold their meetings? Yes, it would be, yes. Okay. No, no, well, well that, that, that seems dead on, but, 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 but so did the previous one. Uh, no, that's dead on. Thank you, Julie. Thank you, Mark. Um, Sinead, have you any questions? Chair, no, I'm content, and thanks, Julie, for the briefing. Karen? Same, Chair, same chair and thank you, Julie, and Natalie, for coming today. Thanks, Chair. And Fra. No, Chair, uh, no, no, no uh, questions. I, but again, I'd like to thank the officers uh, for the work that they've done this and for uh, the information this morning. Um, just when I've been around the room, I'll come back to myself then. Um, I just wanted to clarify, um, Gillian and Anthony, just on um, the clause 2B, um, how persons may attend, speak at, vote in or otherwise participate in meetings when held remotely. Um, can I just clarify, um, there have been some um, concerns that have been raised by some councillors in only some um, council areas 
that the ability to come in to a meeting, if, the, if a councillor has a complaint that they're not being allowed to have their voice heard or they can't take part or voting is, is difficult because they're attending remotely, does that then mean that a complaint can go forward to the department? Um, to seek clarification for that council, or how does that um, the power to make provisions about remote meetings? What powers does that give the department now? Well, one of the things that we're proposing is that, um, uh, and the clause in relation to standing orders, is that um, councils should, in their standing orders, actually set out exactly how the procedures will apply in their council. But the presumption is that the provisions in the 2014 Act, which apply to face-to-face, -face, you know, in-person meetings, will apply to hybrid meetings and to remote meetings as well. Um, so the same rules will apply, but just adapted to make sure that um, they actually take account of not everybody being in the same room or, and to ensure that people have exactly the same speaking rights and exactly the same rights of attendance and participation, no matter whether they are attending in person or not. Um, so we would be working with um, councils to make clear that something needs to go into their standing orders um, so that they will set out exactly what their procedures are. And that, can I just clarify then, that, I, I, I'm delighted to hear that, to be honest, because that has been a concern for some councillors. So if someone is attending remotely, they should have the same speaking rights, the same access to the meeting as all others. So um, just, just for clarification then, it would be the department's view under this um, regulations that hybrid meetings, if you're in person or remotely, as we have within the Assembly in Starleaf, that you have exactly the same speaking rights as, as a person sitting in the room. So you should be allowed to make points of order and you shouldn't have yourself mute or you know, not able to speak. That's absolutely delighted with that one. I'm I'm happy with the rest of this. Um, so I just really appreciate yourself and Anthony coming along this morning. And thank you very much for, for listening to committee concerns. I know that this is going through accelerated passage. Um, our councils need this um, legislation. So I just want to thank you very much for coming along this morning. Um, and we look forward to the next stage next week. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you very much. Members, I'll take you to agenda item three, which is the draft minutes at page eight. Members, the draft minutes from the meeting on the 24th of June 2021 are there for you. Can I ask if members are content to agree the minutes of the 24th of June as drafted? Thank you. Thank you. Um, and agenda item four, matters arising. Um, members, you've been provided at page 21, so you want to turn to page 21 in your pack, with a reply from the Women's Network in relation to the Women Involved in Community Transformation, WICT programme. The Women's Network has finally accepted the six-month extension offer and signed a service level agreement on the 10th of June after a number of ver versions of the service level agreement were deemed unacceptable. Um, additional requirements. Due to the uncertainty, this um, this was after an extremely difficult and stressful time for staff across the programme, with some having been put on protective notice and others redeployed to other funding streams. Relationships with the department have been damaged, but TWN state they will work to repair this damage. A further 110 women have now engaged on the programme, but due to the shortness of the extension, they will only be able to complete the first element of the programme within the time frame.
Members, have you any comments on this matter or are you content to note? I'm not sure. sure. Yes, certainly. It's Andy here. Um, I suppose I'm content in so far as what has been outlined in, in the letter, but I would just like to place on record my frustration with the department in their handling of this whole situation. The communication chain with uh, the various uh, organisations delivering this programme have been very, very poor. Um, and indeed, with myself as an elected representative, responses not being, or questions not being answered, and emails not being uh, answered, etc. So I just want to place that on record, Chair. Thank you. Um, Andy, do you want the committee maybe to contact the department to ask um, if communications could be improved and how they propose to do that? Uh, that would be very helpful, Chair, because um, I do have a number of items of correspondence that I sent in relation to this matter that still, um, after a number of months, have not even been acknowledged nor answered. Okay. I think we'll just maybe send a letter off to the department just to raise Andy's concerns and ask with those concerns being raised, what are the department proposing to do to improve upon communications? Um, anybody else? Any comments? If not, then after that letter, we'll continue on. Okay. Um, members, we now move to um, page 23, where you have a departmental response in relation to full cost recovery for voluntary community and social enterprise sectors. Uh, members, the principle of full cost recovery continues to be supported by departments in line with Treasury guidance. Government accepts that it is legitimate for service providers to factor in the relevant element of overhead costs into their cost estimates for services and in bids for grants. However, it's important to note that full cost recovery does not mean all costs will be recovered in all situations. Um, the Minister has initiated a review of funding approaches in the Department, including the contributions that it makes to salaries, pensions, sickness allowance and potential cost of living uplift. Her aim is to ensure fair terms and conditions for all departmentally funded staff in the sector. The review is ongoing, um, with the Minister intending to make a decision in the near future. Members, have you any comments or are you content to note? If you want to raise your hand or call out folks just so I know if you have anything you want to say. Just to say um, I'm content that the sector this review is ongoing and I very much look forward to the Minister and the Department's comments on that. The one thing I would say is um, cost of living uplift is one thing. I would love to see a living wage paid out for those who are um, in the most, the lowest paid roles within the sector. Um, they are amazing people delivering amazing work, but we will see what the report comes up with. So are we all content to note? If that's the case and there's no dissenting voices, then we'll move on to agenda item five, which is the Charities Bill. Members, the Charities Bill was referred to us yesterday on the 30th of June, so the committee stage has commenced and the bill will be an agenda item until the committee stage is complete. We have a number of items of business to deal with today in relation to the bill. Firstly, members, you have been provided at page 28 with a departmental reply to committee queries following the briefing session on the bill at the meeting on the 10th of June. As requested by the committee, attached to the reply is a copy of the NICFA and Edwards & Co submissions received by the department. The committee was interested in whether the views of CO3 were sought. The response states that CO3 has never raised any issues of concerns in relation to the judgments or the impacts of these on charities. The department highlights that NICFA 
is funded to play a supporting role as the voice of the sector, whereas CO3's stated role is to develop leadership capability in the chief executives within the sector. A breakdown of regulatory decisions which the Bill will make lawful is attached at Annex A. Annex B details the number of registration decisions that were appealed, information on the criteria for an appeal and the number of appeals that were upheld in terms of decisions being unlawful. Members, the committee had also asked whether anyone had raised any legal concerns about the Bill. At the time of writing the response, the Department had not received any comment on the actual content of the Bill, as the detail had not been shared publicly at that point. However, a small number of affected parties had previously raised issues, including concerns that any proposal for retrospective legislation may potentially cut across their rights. The Department states that the Bill ensures robust protection of rights and that a review of correspondence was undertaken to provide assurance to the Committee. This confirms that two correspondents have expressed the view that retrospective legislation was neither desirable nor necessary. One of the correspondents also expressed the view that powers should not be delegated to staff in the future. So, members, are you content to note or have you any comments on this matter? I don't see any hands raised at this stage. Um, if you want to indicate, if I, if I hear silence, then I take it that you're content to note. Yep. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Um, members, we now move on to consider our oral evidence sessions on the bill. You've been provided at page 44 with a list of potential stakeholders on the bill that could be invited to give oral briefings after the summer recess. Members, I propose that we also add the independent review panel to this list. Members, have you any comments? Or are you content that these organisations are invited to brief? Or do members want to add any other organisations to the list? That's on page 44. I'm not hearing anything at the moment, folks. If you want to, could I suggest that you um, send any additional organisation names through to the clerks, um, who can then review those and um, invite any to come along? Um, the number of organisations that we request to give oral briefings will, of course, impact on the length of the committee stage. The clerk will consider the timings after today's meeting, once this initial list is agreed, and the potential need for an extension to the 30-day committee stage. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, excuse me, sorry, uh, Kelly. If I could just ask if any members do have any additional um, names to add to the list that they send them through within the next day or so, so that we can uh, work out the timings. Thank you. So, members, you clear on that? If you have any additional people that you don't have today, um, could you get them through before the end of this week? So if possible, if possible, please. Um, and then we can consider that. But somebody else looking to come in there? No? I'm just wondering, um, there are obviously a, a number of individuals, and I know um, officials highlighted that decisions taken by the High Court previously would not be impacted by this legislation, but is there an opportunity for those individuals who clearly have a detailed knowledge of the, the, uh, the charity commission processes, if there's an opportunity for them to present to the committee also? I'm not sure that would be, because they have an ongoing issue with that legal process, um, what we'll do is we can check that out, but it, there may be a good reason, Andy, why they can't come in 
Um, I know we've received written communications from people that we've passed to the department because it's not in the committee's role to do that, but I understand as part of the charities bill we want to investigate. So can we check that out and we'll get the clerk to confirm if we can even do that? Yes, I know the, the committee's remit in the past has certainly not extended um, to the individuals undergoing um, with a complaint still outstanding or undergoing any of the legal proceedings because that becomes very difficult for the committee to deal with um, and opens, you know, things up to us. So uh, if individuals are maybe being represented by a body or an organisation um, in some way, but um, Andy, but we will we'll consider it first. We'll, we'll consider it and come back um, as as yes, they can write in, you know, uh, under the public call for evidence. So individuals can write in. It's because the charities bill will. You can only become a charity if you have a body as opposed to being individuals. I think those individuals can write in, as Janice has said, to the public um, call for information. Um, and that may be because we, we don't want to get ourselves tied up in any legal complaint, any process, a legal process that's ongoing or a complaint that's in process. But we'll check that out, certainly. Um, but if anybody else has any other organisations that they want to um, add to the list that's on page 44, if you can get those through by close of play tomorrow, um, that would be very much appreciated. Um, so, the, uh, as I said, um, the committee stage then, will how long that will be, will be dependent on that list. Um, members, moving on to consider our public call for evidence and views. You've been provided at page 48 of your pack with a proposed list of draft questions for the committee's call for evidence. Once these are agreed, the clerk will work with the engagement team to set up the call for evidence on the committee website using the citizen space platform that was used for the same, the same one we used for the licensing bill. Um, members, so if you have a look at page 48, can I ask if you are content to agree the questions or if you have any suggested changes or additions? You'll see it all there at um, page 48. Um, Is that Mark? Uh, so, sorry, Chair, no, I, I wasn't looking to come in, sorry. Oh, sorry. <laughs> see, I'm jumping today. I'm making sure I get you all in. Um, if you are content, if, you could, if I could just get an eye on that one, then the, the clerks can proceed on getting that work done. Can I just very quickly, it's remiss of me, I, I should have declared an interest as a charity trustee from the outset, so apologies. No problem, Andy, thank you very much. Um, I'm going to take, uh, can I get an eye on those questions, folks? Some notification on that one? Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Brilliant, thank you very much. Um, so, members, you've also been provided at page 49 with a proposed signposting ad for the committee's call for evidence. I propose that the call for evidence goes out as soon as can be arranged by the committee team after today's meeting and the closing date be set at Friday the 3rd of September. This means that the consultation actually has a, a fair long opening. I know it's over the summer, but it means then that we can see the results of that consultation um, in September. Um, are you content to agree to sign posting ad on page 49? Yeah. Thanks. Yes. Yeah. Thank you very much. That allows our team to get cracking and get that committee stage well underway. Um, moving now then to agenda item six. 
we have a departmental briefing on the private tenancies bill. Members, the papers for this agenda item start at page 51. Oh, they're not on Starleaf. Sorry, our guests aren't on Starleaf. Just left. Yes, because we've moved along quickly. Yes, okay. Okay. We'll watch for it. Sorry, we've moved on a little bit quicker today. Um, so well, I'm going to move on to another section and then come back. We can to do uh, agenda item 10, an SL1. Members, are you content that we move on then to agenda item 10, our SL1 that we need to um, do today? Yes, Chair. So um, this is at page 166. So if you want to move to page 166, agenda item 10, SL1, the Occupational Pension Schemes Masters, or Master Trusts Regulations, NI 2021. The proposed rule at page 166 sets out the authorisation and supervision, supervision regime for Master Trust Pension Schemes under the provisions of the Pension Schemes Bill. Members, have you any comments or are you content for the department to proceed to make this rule? I need to hear a content from you. Thank you very much. That SL one's dealt with. I'll move on quickly then to agenda item 11, which is SR 2021-166, the Registered Rents Increase Order, Northern Ireland 2021. Members, a copy of this rule is at page 173. So 173, we considered the SL1 at our meeting on the 10th of June. Members, do any of you have an objection to the rule? Can I hear a no or a yes? No, I'm seeing Frasi. Okay, so I'm going to then put the following question that the Committee for Communities has considered SR 2021-166, the Registered Rents Increase Order, Northern Ireland 2021, and has no objection to the rule. Thank you. So at this stage, we'll just keep going on with correspondence. Uh, members, we'll move you to the correspondence memo at page 179. Um, so. I'll start off by drawing your attention to page 224, which is the report from NIPSO on PIP and the value of further evidence. Um, so this is the Northern Ireland Public Service Office um, on PIP and the value of further evidence. If the members are content, to re are you content to receive a briefing on the report in September? Yeah, content. Thank you. I think it's important that we get that. And members then at page 581 is a request from the Joseph Browntree Foundation to brief the committee regarding post-COVID, the way forward. They were invited to our last formal, informal stakeholder briefing session but were unable to attend. Again, are you content to receive a briefing in September? Yes, sure. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Members who are in Starleaf, have you any correspondence issues that you want to bring to attention or to ask questions about? Sure. Yes, certainly, Fra. Uh, sure, there, uh, I think uh, uh, to, to give space and room to the Joseph Rowntree Foundation is excellent because they, they, they are, uh, besides the latter, uh, one of the biggest uh, funders of the community and family sector in, in many ways. And some of their uh, some of their, their 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 work and the resources they provided uh, has uh, helped 
uh, along with the, the work of the department, does uh, help build many of the structures that now exist across the, 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 the north. So I think uh, we, we do, and I think that uh, it would be interesting uh, post-COVID, uh, and certainly uh, the, 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 the find out uh, how they see themselves fitting in uh, to, uh, to uh, the, the, the whole structural funding aspect of people's lives. Uh, just thought it, uh, uh, I would make that point. Yeah, absolutely. During our informal session, when we heard from other organisations, it's very clear that we have a sector that is, is preparing to ramp up um, its work following COVID and to, to help our community to come back out of the, the lockdown situations. Um, absolutely, Joseph Browntree Foundation, not only do they provide fantastic reports, but their insight would be very useful. Members, anybody else have any comments on the correspondence memo? And then if you're proposed, or I'm just checking then to see if you are content to action the correspondence as set out in the correspondence memo. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Thank you very much, members. Yeah. Um, uh, do you just want to do... Uh, Agenda item 11, forward work programme. Thank you. Members, we'll go then to our agenda item 11, which is our forward work, work programme. Members, we do plan to have a short meeting next week to deal with any outstanding matters, correspondence, departmental replies, subordinate legislation, um, etc. Um, you'll be delighted to hear at this stage there's no briefing sessions, but we've had changes before. Oh, we've won here now, no problem. Um, so just to let you know then, members, for our forward work plan, it is a tidy up before the summer recess. Um, so hopefully at this stage we won't have a briefing session. Um, but um, we never know. Something could change between now and then. Um, and just checking with clerks here at the moment about our departmental officials. I believe one has arrived, but what we may do is give the others a little bit of time if you want. Yeah, to I think possibly we just stop for five minutes till we so members, gather we're ourselves. We're going to take um, a five-minute break before we go back to agenda item six, which is the departmental briefing on the private tenancies bill, because we are flying through this morning. That papers are at page fifty-one, so we're going to take a short break. We'll be back just um, before eleven o'clock. Sorry, 10 o'clock. Okay. We're very fast today. Um, so we'll see you. Uh, well, actually, we'll go for 10 o'clock just to give um, people the opportunity to get on to Starleaf then. Thank you very much, members. Thank you. Members, we're back um, with the Committee for Communities at Agenda Item 6, Departmental Briefing on the Private Tenancies Bill. Um, Thank you, Antoinette. You've just brought the officials into the meeting. I'd like to welcome to the meeting David Pauley, Elish O'Neill and Conrad Murphy. Um, thank you very much, um, folks, for coming along to see us today. Um, I'll not hold you back, David, if you'd like to take forward the briefing, please. All right. Thank you. Um, I hope this is all working now. It took us a bit of time to, to make sure we were all in. Um, Okay, thanks to the committee for the opportunity at this time to address the members on where we are with the legislative proposals for a new private tenancies bill. The private rented sector is helping to meet housing need and provides an important housing option for a range of individuals and families. As it has grown, there's rightly been an increased focus on how the private rented sector is regulated. 
In May 2001, we reported on the outcome of the 2017 public consultation on proposals for change for the private rented sector here. Um, the consultation document sought responses, firstly, to a total of 16 proposals, which covered supply, affordability, security of tenure, tenancy management, property standards, and dispute resolution. Um, secondly, responses were also sought to 20 proposals for amendments to the private tenancies in Northern Ireland order 2006, the landlord registration, and the tenancy deposit scheme regulations. So we had 52 responses to the consultation um, on those firm proposals for change before the closing date in April 2017. People who responded were landlords and landlord reps, council reps, public bodies, housing professionals, charities, rent agents, consultants, housing associations, other government departments, and tenant representatives. And in addition, we did a tenant survey on the general proposals, responses from tenants mirror those of the 52 responses. However, two proposals attracted greater support from tenants, namely the proposal for five-year electrical checks and the proposal to introduce the tenant staff person at the point of registration. The department also hosted four public events in Belfast, Craigavon, Corwin and Cookstown, where around 60 people attended. And the department presented at the Charter Institute of Housing first in the event, Housing Rights, Housing Practitioners Meeting and a Tenancy Deposit Scheme Northern Ireland Advisory Group. Um, building on this then, we've been working with our legal advisors at the Office for Legislative Council to draft the Private Tenancies Bill, which the Executive has agreed that the Minister can introduce in the Assembly before summer recess, and that bill is currently with the Speaker's office. Um, this bill is necessary, as is clear reform is urgently needed to make the sector safer and more secure. This will improve standards and enhance conditions for tenants living in the sector. I'd be happy to provide further clarification of the details of the bill, its policy intent and purpose, and given the limited time in this mandate, the Minister has decided to have a two-phase approach to implementing policy outcomes from the consultation into legislation. So the first phase of that implementation approach is in this bill, but there are other things then that we've talked about in the consultation that we'll do at a later phase. So once phase one has been completed, and that will include the regulations, phase two, with additional proposed recommendations and reforms, will be further researched and developed. So phase two includes things like the regulation of letting agents, which is a cross-cutting issue with DOF, further detail of EPC proposals, which need to be taken forward in regulations, a fitness standards review, which would apply across all tenures, considering if we should introduce grounds for eviction, including a fast-track procedure, which would be required for certain categories like antisocial behaviour, and then this links in with the length of notice to quit, and consideration on how to ensure that rents are fair, and that's in line with similar commitments in the social sector. So these are complex and cross-cutting issues and require significant work and engagement before they can be progressed. Taking into account the scale and scope of research, policy development and consultation needed to bring these issues to a point where legislation is possible, it was agreed that it was not possible to include these matters in the legislative programme for this mandate. So they're not in this bill, but we're still taking work forward on them. an overview of the bills in the we want to take forward in this assembly mandate. Okay, thank you, David. Um, <clears throat> thank you, Chair. Um, I, I'm very conscious of, of the time that we have th this morning, so um, with your, your permission, I'd like just to give you a, a summary of the 11 substantive clauses and, and, and the three schedules that are, that are in this bill. Um, as David has referred to, that they're the, kind of the first phase of, of the work that we're doing in relation to the private rental sector. Um, and in the main, they're, they're creating amendments to the private tenancies order, the, the 2006 legislation, which is the main 
piece of legislation that kind of governs the, the private rental sector. Um, again, I'll take a committee through them just as they appear on the bill. So, so kind of clause by, by clause, starting at clause number just, one. Sorry, um, Conrad, just to highlight to members, if they want to follow the clause by clause, there's a note at page 74, if they want to follow that along with Conrad. Sorry for interrupting you, Conrad. Carry on. Thank you, Chair. That's really helpful. Um, the first two clauses, if you like, I'd like to, to take together, and, and effectively they relate to tenants being given um, a written statement of, of the terms of their tenancy. Um, clause 1 makes it mandatory that landlords do that, um, and they do that within 28 days of, of the granting of, of a tenancy or a, or a new tenancy. Um, so, so landlords <clears throat> will now provide a document to a tenant which will set out the roles and responsibilities and the obligations on, on both parties. And as I said, the plan would be that that, that would be um, within 28 days of the granting of a new tenancy. Um, whenever we, we were searching um, this particular clause with, with our colleagues in, in uh, the Office of Legislative Council, um, the, there was a, a, a previous article in, um, in, in the order that had been repealed in error, um, which effectively meant that we didn't have a piece of legislation um, to cover t existing tenants um, the, whenever that Article 4 was repealed on the 30th of June, there was no uh, mandatory requirement on landlords to provide that, that written tenancy. So Clause 2 deals with that, that gap, if you like. I don't want to use the term that it's a kind of technical clause, but effectively it's around um, how we cover that gap because um, there, there isn't a piece of legislation to cover the existing tenants. Um, it's not a, a, a repeal that's widely known, and our and our expectation and our assumption is that the vast majority of landlords have continued to provide uh, written uh, tenancy agreements to, to their tenants, but this is just to, to capture that gap, as I've said. Um, clause 3 relates to, to those situations where tenants uh, pay their rent in cash, um, and just again introduces a requirement where if rent is paid in cash, uh, the landlord should provide the tenant with, with a receipt um, that details Clearly, with the payment date, uh, the amount that's been paid, if it's been paid in full, or, or any amount of standing. Uh, and again, that's just to cover those situations, the smallest in number we expect that where a tenant pays their the rent uh, to their landlord in, in cash. Um, clause 4 deals with, with tenancy deposit amounts um, and, and creating a limit on a tenancy deposit amount. Um, as, you, as members and may already be aware, there's currently no limit on what landlords can charge as, as or demand as a deposit. Um, and this clause has been introduced in order to mitigate against landlords charging excessive deposits, which will make access to private rental sector even more difficult for those who are low, low incomes. Again, in summary, what this clause is, is attempting to do is to make sure that no more than one rent uh, an amount equal to one, one month's rent would be the limit of, of the tenancy deposit, probably haven't articulated that particularly well, um, and that if more than that is charged, then that, that's recoverable back to, to the tenant. So effectively, limiting tenancy deposit amounts to an amount equal to, to one month, month's rent in advance. Um, <clears throat> clause 5, uh, um, again, I don't want to suggest that it's kind of technical in nature, but, but essentially it's just um, given a little more time um, for tenancy deposits to be protected um, and for a landlord to provide the information to tenants. Um, so in terms of the first, to extend the time limit from 14 days to 28 days, 
um, and for the second, for a landlord to provide information to the tenant from, from 28 days to 35 days. <coughs> um, clause 6 also deals with tenancy deposits in relation to continuing offences, and this is where, um, where a landlord persists in, in, in not uh, protecting the tenancy or, or, or dealing with, with the issues that have, are in relation to providing that information to the tenant. <clears throat> and there's no effectively no time barrier on, on prosecuting a person who fails to comply with those with those particular requirements. Um, clause seven um, introduces a restriction on rent increases. Uh, again, members I'm sure will be aware of situations where where landlords um, have increased um, increased rents to the, to their tenants, perhaps as often as they wish. So effectively, there's nothing to prevent a landlord imposing rent increases without giving adequate notice, uh, and in, in some cases, more than once in any 12-month period. And again, this can cause tenants to, to, to have to leave the tenancy or to fall into arrears, which, which in turn can, can lead to, um, to having to leave the tenants or, or, or to, to be affected effectively. Um, so, so Clause 7 introduces, for, for most private tenancies, um, Mandatory that a rent can can only be increased once in any in any twelve month period. Um, so effectively, be no increases in the first twelve months. Uh, once once the tenancy is created, and then there would be a minimum of twelve months be, between any further increases. Um, and again, that clause also introduces some information about about how the landlord needs to provide the notice of that rent increase and how that needs to be done and, and done in writing. Um, clause eight deals with, with Fire, smoke, and carbon monoxide alarms. Um, and again, outside of, of new builds, there's currently no regal requirement for private landlords to have a working smoke and carbon monoxide detectors installed in their in the rented properties. And clearly, the absence of of working fire, smoke, and carbon monoxide detectors have have health uh, and safety impacts on tenants who are living in, in the private rented sector. Um, so, so clause eight introduces. Some mandatory requirements on private landlords to provide those fire, smoke, and carbon monoxide detectors, um, and with detail the landlord and tenant duties associated with those. Um, clause nine deals with with energy energy efficiency, um, and effectively <coughs> introduces enabling power in this piece of legislation. Um, and one of the schedules, schedule two, um, supports some further information in relation to that. To make some further regulations regarding the ener energy efficiency of dwelling houses left under under private tenancy, <coughs> um, as as members may be aware, it, it kind of uh, the model used in, in in terms of measuring energy efficiency um, across all sectors is is through the, the energy performance certificate. And again, um, as Elish may well cover in in response to your questions, a lot of the the underlying work in relation to this clause will be through the, the support and regulations. Um, Clause 10 does something similar for electrical safety um, and again provides the Department of Naval and Power to make regulations around, regulations around electrical safety standards in private tenancies. Um, again, the detail will be in, in, in the regulation. There's some supporting information in the schedule. Schedule 3 <coughs> on the requirement to carry out regular elect uh, electrical safety checks. Um, the last substantive clause um, deals with, with notice to quit. Um, again, members will probably be aware about the process in order uh, for, for a landlord uh, to be able to, to remove, that's the terminology, um, a tenant from, from a private rented sector um, tenancy, um, and that 
the landlord has to provide a notice to quit period. Um, during the work that we've done in, in looking at, at the policy and notice to quit, it, it's been very clear that the, the current situation where a tenant is given four weeks notice to quit to leave, leave a property is inadequate in order to, to make the arrangements necessary in order to, to find alternative accommodation within their budgets um, and do all of the, the other changes that might be made, uh, might be required, particularly in relation to uh, schools and, and, and healthcare, etc. Um, so the, the, the bill, as, as written, um, extends that notice to quit for landlords from four weeks to eight weeks. So, um, and again, without going into, into the detail of that in terms of uh, um, slightly different arrangements depending on how long a tenant is in the tenancy, in, in, in the, the broad summary, it extends it from four weeks to eight weeks. Um, <clears throat> the committee may well be aware that that when Minister Nicolin um, made the housing statement back in November to, to Assembly, um, she indicated then that um, four weeks and indeed eight weeks still didn't seem sufficient um, and ideally would, would like that extended uh, potentially up to six months. Um, and we continue to do some work in parallel with, with this bill in, in looking at, at what further options there might be around this. But, but for today, I think it's uh, important to just let committee know that that clause will also include the power for the for the department to extend that eight week period out to say up to, to six months again but with supporting regulations and with, with, with consultation as, as appropriate um, and that is, is a very quick summary of the clauses I, I hope you've been able to follow that uh, alongside uh, the, the notes in your pack um, and, and David Elish and I are happy to take questions Thank you very much, Conrad. Thank you very much, all. Um, I'm going to not ask every question, but um, in my place here as, as chair, um, I do have a few questions. Then um, I will go to members. So, members, if you could raise your hand if you want to come in after me, that would be useful. Um, thank you very much for your briefing today. Um, David, you had mentioned earlier about the responses to the 2017 consultation. Um, we've noted that only two responses were received from tenant representatives, um, and then there was the need for the additional survey, and to which 118 tenants responded. Are you content now that the consultation provided a balanced set of responses? Um, I suppose the short answer to that, Chair, is that a consultation isn't a, it's not a vote. It's to seek people's views, which you can then take into account. Um, we did extra work to get um, more views from tenants. Um, they more or less aligned with the other responses. It is hard to get responses from tenants in the private rented sector. There's not um, the same infrastructure around um, tenant engagement that there is, in, for example, in the social sector. Um, tenants move around a lot. Um, it can be difficult. Elis, is there anything you'd like to add? Because you, you were yeah, involved yeah, in the consultation. I was. I think um, we used the um, Housing Rights Service, service uh, te Private Tenants Forum, which provided a really good platform for gathering um, information from private tenants. We also used our Tenants Deposit Scheme administrators who sent out um, a survey to private tenants on our behalf. The response rate, as David, response rate, as David has said, was um, was was lower than than we would have liked. And even at our public consultation events, which we advertise quite widely, there was a smaller representation from private tenants than, than we would have liked. But we were 
confident at least that we had tried every possible avenue that was open to us to, to encourage um, engagement from, from private tenants. But obviously, the more private tenants who, who respond or who interact with us, the better it is for us in formulating um, policy and legislation. Thank you very much. Uh, the committee is very committed to co-production and co-design, so thank you for taking those extra steps. Um, just before I move on to some of very quick questions about clauses, um, it's important for the committee to have a good picture of the background and context of the bill. Um, I'd like to ask you a question about, well, it's, I'll actually stray into wider policy issues. Um, I'm just thinking in terms of some of the wider issues of concern to the committee about the review of houses and, and multiple occupation, the HMOs, and rent arrears mm -hmm. issue. Um, is, there, is there any update on these areas, and if it has been considered, whether they could have been considered within the scope of this bill? Well, um, I think it's fair to say the, the HMO um, bill, which was introduced in 2019, the review of that legislation is currently ongoing. We have just um, yesterday afternoon sent out the results of the survey. We completed that to some stakeholder groups um, and we're in the process of setting up meetings to go through all of the issues that were raised. Some of them were around legislation, some of them were around operational delivery, and some of them were around uh, the guidance that was produced by the department. So this is very much still a, a work in progress and we'd be happy to come back and brief the committee on that review as it, as it progresses. Um, tenants and HMOs are also private tenants. So this bill will cover the rights of HMO tenants in terms of um, their um, <clears throat> notice to quit periods and their deposits. So they will be covered by this piece of legislation as well. And you've asked a question around rent arrears, Chair. Do you mean um, tenants who are in rent arrears as a result of COVID? Do you mean the more general issue of rent arrears? Well, we know, for instance, that in Scotland um, there's been a £10 million fund um, to help tenants struggling with rent arrears as a result of the pandemic. Um, and we've heard recently, you know, that in the, the social sector there are, especially in the housing executive, a high number of people now in rent arrears. And that could be pandemic or it could be universal credit five-week wait. We're just wondering, in this one, um, because it's private tenancies, is there anything there that you were thinking about with rent arrears? I know you've said there that the notice to quit has been increased, but is there anything that could help or plan to help tenants that get into rent arrears in the private rented se sector? Within the context of this of this bill and this phase, um, no, sure there isn't. There isn't anything specific that relates to, to rent arrears. I mean, in relation to rent arrears that are occurring as COVID, we are aware of, of the the, um, the initiatives in Scotland, and very recently with the Welsh government making their announcement around uh, grant funding. We are gathering as much information, and there's a piece of research currently underway to try and identify those tenants who could be suffering arrears. Um, and, and what gap they would have, what stool they would have fallen between, given that there was the furlough scheme, that there was the lifting of the local housing allowance cap, that the discretionary housing payment budget was, was made more widely available, there was additional support provided for students. So we've asked for some information around who could potentially have fallen through any of the gaps and what that, what that might look like. So there is work ongoing around that. Well, thank you very much. We're aware that some of the younger people who are out living in private tenancies um, who've lost those um, part-time jobs or, or other jobs in the, the gig economy are, are struggling. So, no, Elish, I could listen to you all day on that one. Thank you very much. I'm going to go now to the other members to give them a chance. I'm going to ask people to come in as I see it on the screen. Fra, I'm coming to you first and then Mark. I'll bring Fra in, please. Sure, thank you very much. So, uh, 
No, thank you, and thank, thank you to the guys for uh, the presentation. Uh, I know them of old, and they've been working on on this uh, these things for quite a long time. And I know that uh, I know that we're we're, we're talking about uh, reaching out to people uh, to, uh, to to participate. Uh, believe me, I think that uh, we're in a far better position uh, today and how we reach out to people than we were uh, quite a while ago uh, with a, a lot of the usual suspects and uh, a, a, lot of the, a lot of what came out of it was based on that. So uh, in fairness to the, 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 the department, uh, they have done it. I know my, myself personally uh, has, and my own constituency had been in touch with all the residents' associations, all the things, asking them to participate. Uh, and and the consultations and I can't say them that uh, you uh, you can't uh, they, they, uh, complain if you don't want if you don't participate in making change and trying to shape so I think we all we all have a duty uh, to try and ensure that despite the important issues like this here uh, that of people uh, that part to participate uh, and, and that and what we probably need to look at is uh, how we as politicians <coughs> encourage people uh, to, to, to participate. And I know that uh, um, I uh, personally, in, in terms of going back uh, quite a number of years, brought the first uh, motion in front of the Assembly uh, on that uh, landlord registration back in the day. Uh, and the, uh, believe it or not, at that stage, it got the full uh, support of the whole assembly uh, and, and pushing that. But one of the things that has always concerned me that many of stuff, much of this stuff has been piecemeal in terms of I've always favoured a robust, robust pieces of legislation that would allow you to deal with some some of the bad practices uh, that 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 has went on. I, uh, I and I, I've got this stage where I do understand that the private rented sector play an important role. Uh, and the provision uh, of housing, <clears throat> and I think they're they're by far uh, the, the the biggest sector in the provision of uh, socially rented housing. Uh, I think over other housing uh, providers, uh, and some of them uh, are, are, are provide good quality housing. But I think what that does also, chair, and what there is also is that there are a considerable uh, number of landlords who still provide. Uh, uh, terrible houses or terrible housing uh, to, to, to people. They're difficult to get repairs done. Uh, that uh, the, 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 the attitude of some landlords is really atrocious. And anything, anything, including this, uh, this bill, uh, that uh, starts to bring change to that sector, uh, which is a word we wouldn't tolerate this and uh, other forms of housing providers and yet there's hundreds and hundreds of millions of pounds uh, go from uh, the, the department and the, 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 the private rented sector so I welcome it uh, obviously some of the other stuff that was discussed uh, or, or in the, 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 pre the presentation I would have liked to see a bigger bill uh, taking on more stuff more protection for tenants but also I do accept that in, in, in many cases uh, we have to have something then to protect some of the landlords against some of the some of the the, the people that they, they they have got in. So I, I like yourself, sure. I could speak about this all day. Uh, I think that uh, anything in it that that uh, that makes a lot better uh, for people who uh, decide to, to to go into the private rented sector for housing 
uh, can only be good. So thank you very much. I'm looking forward uh, to, to the outcome to it. The sooner it comes in, the better, uh, because there's some important issues there uh, that, uh, that that needs to be that needs to be dealt with. So thank you, sir. Sure. Thank you very much, Fra. Thank you. Can I can I pick up on the that we do want to do more? The minister's been very clear that um, she sees this as a start. That there are significant additional protections and further things that she wants to do in the private rented sector. Um, it's just that we're doing a relatively short bill. It's not it's not a short bill, um, but it's it doesn't cover anywhere near as much as our minister's ambition was that it would. Um, but we are taking forward work on those other things. So I, I mentioned those at the start. So it is quite there is quite a significant programme of work that we have kicked off in the private rental sector. It is going to run on for 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 various year for many years. You know, I think we are looking realistic at four or five years worth of work here. Um, we're dealing with a shortened mandate, so we're trying to get through what we can. When you look at this bill, I think you'll hope the committee will agree that it was important that we got these things in as quickly as possible. Things like carbon monoxide detectors. You know, I, I want those, we want those in, in private rented sector houses because they protect lives. Um, they, these things are important. Um, so we thought it was worthwhile and was value in bringing forward a relatively smaller bill now rather than waiting before we did these things until we were ready with everything else. And I hope the committee understands that. Um, and I'd like you to agree with, I'd, I'd hope you agree with the approach. And um, it's good to hear, Fra, we've got one vote anyway. So thank you. Um, sorry, Chair, could I, could I just add that, um, that um, the points made were, were very well made. There are now around 48% of private tenants um, who have to receive help with their, to, make, to make their rent payments. So um, there's a growing number of more vulnerable and lower income people who live in the sector. Um, and we, we balance that against the fact that 80% of landlords who are registered, which is around um, 40,000 landlords, who are compliant with the law. They're not just the only landlords in Northern Ireland. They're the only ones who are compliant with the law and who have registered as is a legal requirement. They own one or two properties. And that for many of the stories that we heard from tenants around bad landlord behaviour, we equally heard from landlords around poor tenant behaviour and the impact that, have, that that had on them with damage to property, with non-payment of, of rent. And, and so the, the bill is an attempt, and um, when the whole thing is completed and basically is completed, to balance to balance things out. Because as, as the member said there, the private rented sector is a vital housing component and, and we need it and we need it to work for people who live there and for people who, who work in that area. Thank you very much. I'm going to move on to the next member who has their hand. Um, could we bring Mark Durkin in, please? Thank you, Chair, and thanks to Alice and David uh, for that presentation and, and overview of this important uh, piece of legislation. And it is very important and it, 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 it looks very good. We'd like to see more on that, to understand and take that on board, David. So would the Minister, and this is, is one piece of the jigsaw, but it's a very important piece uh, nonetheless. Fra talked there a bit about irresponsible and unscrupulous landlords, but uh, I know Eilish has come in there and kind of says what I was going to do. Most landlords are good and decent, but the difficulties that Fra did describe that, that face tenants and where you have to chase after landlords for even uh, basic and fundamental uh, repairs is something that we'd all be familiar with uh, as elected representatives and we'd love to see what more or stronger measures could be taken uh, 
to, to make it easier for tenants and, and, and more difficult uh, for those unscrupulous landlords to evade and avoid their res- responsibility. I think that's even more pronounced maybe in some areas rather than others where there'd be maybe more private landlords who reside in a different jurisdiction. It makes it even harder <laughs> to, to, to pin them down in, in some respects. Uh, as regards the, the, the bill itself, I just look at it or ask about a couple of the clauses. Uh, clause 7, the restriction on rent increases, very much uh, welcome that. Uh, one of the things that I've become aware of lately is, is rent going up while the local housing allowance is, is sort of hovering around the same spot. And while the, the we had the emergency legislation that is still in place until September around the notice to, to quit period, you were seeing effectively some people being evicted by <laughs> another means, you know, by, by rent hikes and uh, tenants saying, no, we can't afford this and we, we, we aren't going to get in arrears, so ha- haven't they ultimately pack up and go without technically have, having been uh, evicted? Uh, I think that's maybe a bit more pronounced at the minute too because property prices are high and you have landlords who are seeing this as a good time to sell. Uh, so uh, let's see, in terms of clause 10... I was wondering, would there be anything in place to give confidence to tenants to report faults afterwards uh, to landlords without fear of eviction? Because I know currently that, that is a genuine concern, particularly among older and, and, and more vulnerable tenants. The, the more <laughs> extensive or expensive the repairs required, uh, the more reluctant or fearful sometimes tenants are to report them. To, to landlords, but because they, they think that either their, their rent will go away up to pay for it, or they'll end up just getting uh, turfed out. And clause 11, the extension of the notice to quit, and we touched on that a bit, but I was just wondering where did the eight weeks come from, given that the minister has previously indicated her desire, or sorry, the, the previous minister had indicated her desire to, to see it maybe moved up the six months and I wonder just was there any scope or, or thought given they just continuing with the 12 that's currently in place under the emergency uh, legislation and I note that this applies just where tenancies are 12 months or longer I was wondering what protections exist for those in shorter tenancies and wondered might there perhaps be a situation where because of this legislation or because of the extension to the notice, but only applying for tenancies longer than 12 months, that you see a pattern start of landlords offering tenancies of less than 12 months? Sorry, could I, can I maybe start? I've made a note, so if I miss anything, please, please stop me. Um, one point that I wanted to make was you talked about um, repairs and, and tenants having to chase after landlords. That was a common theme throughout the consultation as well. Um, we are currently, in addition to working on the bill, we're working, we set up a project group and we're working with councils to see if we can enhance the landlord registration scheme and transfer that to councils along with the fee that's collected from landlords so that um, there would be 
a much more robust scheme where there would be inspections of properties to make sure they meet fitness standard and where um, the councils would receive their funding, the funding that they would need to let them um, do, do work within this sector, which we think is, is key to bringing about improvements in the private rented sector. So that project group um, has been established. There's been consultancy work commissioned to see what this could look like and what additional powers would need to be introduced through legislation to make this work and to make it a much more robust scheme. So um, and we will be back at a future date to brief the, the committee on that, but, but certainly the role of repairs and the reporting of repairs is something that would, that would feature within that, that piece of work. Um, you'd asked around um, Clause 7, which was... Um, I'm back to my notes here, which is, which is the rent increase. And the point that you made is, is very well made. I mean, during the consultation, we heard from a particular tenant who his landlord called at her house on a Friday night to tell her that her rent was going up by £100 a month simply because he had heard from a friend of his who rented a property to a different tenant that he was getting £100 a month rent more. And that will, will stop this. Um, on average, tenancies last between 12 to 18 months. And there's no requirement for shorter tenancies for there to be a written tenancy agreement because often these suit people who need a short-term let, so they only want to stay in the property for a, for a few months. And that works for both the landlord and the tenant. So the notice to quit period was not deemed to be relevant for a tenancy that was less than one year where you weren't going to have possibly a written tenancy agreement. But, but happy to take that away and look at it as the bill progresses okay. and all of the clauses are, are questioned and... And we're dealing with those questions. Because I was just wondering, might you see more landlords offering shorter tenancies so, so, so they aren't signing up or committing to, to this? Landlords, and, and, and I have to be fair, whenever we were doing um, our, our consultation and our engagement exercise on this, and you'd asked where the eight weeks came from in terms of the notice to quit. Landlords' concern around the notice to quit, um, they, they, had no con they had no issue with it being extended because they fully accepted that eight weeks or that four weeks isn't long enough for someone to move um, home and to find um, alternative accommodation that's suitable to their needs. The reason that this bill says eight weeks is because this is what we consulted on back in 2017. So when we engaged with the sector, we said four weeks isn't long enough. What if we double this? Um, so eight weeks was something that was discussed and, and debated at that point in time when Minister then subsequently looked at this and said, well, I would like to go for longer because there hadn't been a consultation period. It was not possible to draft this in the legislation because it wouldn't have been it wouldn't have had any basis um, for a longer introduction. So while it says eight weeks within the bill, David has already touched on this and so has Conrad. The Minister has, has expressed her intention to extend this for a longer period of time. And we're currently carrying out the research that's needed to give us the information that we would need to look at a potential extension, even though this bill hasn't gone through its normal its normal course. It's still a work, very much a work in progress. The 12 weeks um, in the emergency COVID regulations was introduced simply as that uh, to deal with a pandemic and in an emergency situation. So there wasn't any requirement to do any sort of consultation because it is very much a short-term measure. And within the context of the bill, where Minister had said she wanted to look at a longer period, we had taken legal advice from our departmental solicitors around the potential to extend, to keep that 12-week um, notice to quit period going forward in permanent legislation. But we were told without the consultation needed to do that, that we couldn't do it. So we were tied into the eight weeks. Now, landlords have been, have been, have been quite vocal in this, and they've told us that they get one month's rent in advance because often when they give a tenant notice to quit, the tenant doesn't pay their last month's rent. 
So they will have some concerns around having to give two months notice to quit. And if the tenant doesn't pay their rent for that two months, they only have the one month's deposit. So I've no doubt this is an issue which was raised with us, will be raised with committee whenever you put out your, your call for evidence. Okay, no, th thanks for that, Eilish. And then there, there was just that wee bit on, on, on clause 10 around the, the sort of electrical stuff and, and, and safety issues there, where, where sometimes, and this is a, an experience that in the office, where people are reluctant, are <laughs> almost frightened to report uh, stuff for repair to, to landlords for fear of the impact that might have A, on the rent or B, on their tenancy. I was just wondering, is, is there anything in there around periodic checks on electricals, etc., to ensure the safety of those living in the house and around it, and to ensure that those are carried out by, I suppose, registered or approved electricians and not by cowboys, or in some cases just the landlords themselves, without any qualification? I think it, what Clause 10 does, it gives us the enabling power for the electrical safety um, standards uh, checks to be introduced. Regulations will then, will then follow on the back of that, which will stipulate who should do them and the frequency with which they should be done. I know whenever we did our consultation, we said five years. Um, there was some um, reluctance from landlords who thought that was maybe a bit too frequent. Um, industry who didn't think it was it was that frequent. So we will be engaging with with landlords and with the industry experts to come up with a proposal around the time frame during which these electrical safety checks should be periodically carried out. But the clause itself does say for periodical electrical safety checks, so the only yeah. thing in the regulations will be the frequency with which they have to be done. So just to reassure you then, tenants won't have to report, well, I mean, they can report a fault, but their houses will have to be regularly checked by a qualified electrician every five years without them having the side of the landlord. Um, you know, it's not at the current situation where you sort of have to wait for something to go wrong and then you have to contact the landlord yourself. In this instance, with electrical things, the landlord will, has it, will have a duty to, to, to check the electrics of the house at least, well, possibly every five years, depending on what the regulations. But, but, but I take your point that, that it's... Sorry. I'm not sure how, how many tenancies that they could like to see a sort of statistical breakdown yes. of average length of tenancy and, and how many of those would actually be over five five years. I think I think the check if the check's carried out on the property every five years, then the length of the, the time the tenant spends in that property won't really be impacted by that because if you're in a property for for one for one year or for a year and a half or for four years, as long as the checks are regularly carried out to make sure that there's there's safety within the property. But I do take your point. I think a lot of the faults that are reported are um, heating systems that break down, um, issues with with plumbing, issues with damp and condensation. So we would hope that the um, the EPC requirement and the requirement for a property to meet a certain EPC standard would address issues around heating and and insulation. Yeah, but, it was just but, every five years or any time there's a change in tenancy. Like, I mean, it's just a requirement to get the EPC each time that there's a change in tenancy. Yeah. Although if a tenancy lasts and the average tenancy lasts for 12 months, it, it wouldn't seem very practical to have to do an electrical safety check every year. But we're a tenancy. Um, but, but it's something I think when we're doing the regulations that we will we definitely be teasing out. But, but but it might be something then that acts as a deterrent 
<laughs> to, to landlords as well to determinate tenancies prematurely. On, on, on that point, the, point, every landlord I talk to is very keen to have tenants stay in a house as long as possible. Yeah. And the, the reason for that is because um, whenever tenancy ends, they have to go and do change of tenancy works and clean the place out and read it out and fix anything, yeah. and that costs money. And quite often it sits for quite a length of time before a new tenant comes in. So, and I came across, this surprised me because I used to work on social housing providers and they obviously have an interest in getting new tenants in as quickly as possible. A housing executive does its change of tenancies on average something like 16 days, or it certainly did whenever I was working on it. I think the average change of tenancy in the private rental sector is more like six or seven weeks. Yeah. So landlords want people to stay for as long as, as possible because that's actually quite, that's quite a lot of income lost for a landlord. Yeah. And it's Alice alluded to, most of them only own one or two houses. Um, so there's very little balance of risk associated with it. Um, but we have, I mean, we, we are, we do need to, part of the committee scrutiny will need to be to look at possible adverse consequences and how we can protect against those. No, well, I look forward to that. Okay, thank you, folks. Thank and you. maybe, Chair, if I could just, if I could just add, that, 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 I think the only thing we maybe didn't cover off <clears throat> with Mark's question was around um, the qualified person bit and, and the reference to, you know, the analogy of, of cowboy electricians or landlords. <clears throat> um, the schedule in, in Schedule 3 in the bill does make reference to your qualified person, and that clearly will be supported by the regulations. So there will be those electrical checks will need to be carried out by a qualified person. Thank, thanks for that, Conrad. And just to reiterate or bookend my remarks by saying, I, I understand and appreciate that the vast, vast majority of landlords yeah. are, 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 are responsible and good yeah. and necessary. Yeah. Thank you very much, Mark. Um, I'll bring in Andy Allen at this stage. Thanks, Chair. I had tried to get in earlier um, just to declare an interest at the outset of, of this piece, um, so apologies. Um, most of the questions have been covered in, in relation to this. I, I just wanted to place on record um, my thanks to the officials for bringing forward uh, this important piece of work in strengthening and further regulating the private rent sector. And I look forward to getting our, our teeth into this um, through the committee stage and, and hearing from uh, those in the wider sector as to how we can improve uh, regulation and protect uh, tenants and landlords. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Fra, you. you have your hand up again. Do you want to come back in? Um, I, I do. There's just a couple of points that I forgot to raise. Um, I fully agree with uh, some of the stuff that Mark has, has uh, brought up, but and I, I had meant to, uh, to, to bring it up under Clause 7, Restriction on Rents. And that is one of the things that's lost in all this, that a huge amount of people, especially in uh, those working class communities uh, that uh, that uh, use it, the private uh, landlords or uh, the private rented sector, uh, I think, is that while a rent is set and uh, there may be a restriction on it, which I think is excellent, I do believe uh, that a big lot of people pay top ups, sometimes as much as 30 or 40 pounds a month, maybe more on top of uh, the thing, and especially for people. Uh, that are on benefit, they have to uh, turn to their parents, so they have to turn to relatives to do it. Do it. Is there anything that we can look at within this here uh, that, 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 that could deal with that uh, uh, sector of it? You know, and I, I think it may be unique uh, to uh, areas of high social deprivation, 
And I think it's, I think it's, I've argued this piece out for years and years about the thing. The other, and that's the hidden costs of it. I think certainly, uh, Margaret again on the, the, the inspections, uh, I agree. It, uh, it, uh, it makes sense that it uh, should rest with the, uh, the council. Uh, but on top of that, to see in terms of the, the, the electrics, I think that the, the, uh, a policy of spot checks uh, every year uh, may be enough to send out the, uh, the, 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 the message uh, that uh, people are uh, renting houses that have serious electrical problems uh, that, uh, that we'll be watching. You. And that, that, that's, that's, that's important. Uh, so the, the other thing is that, and it was touched on, I think, by Eilish, uh, and it's a whole question, and, and around uh, the, 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 not only rents, but the, 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 the given the, the down payment. You know, I thought at the end of this, that was one of the things uh, that uh, the, the tenancy deposit scheme uh, was to take care of. That there would be an, an agreement at the end of it that there, were, of there was difficulties, uh, that uh, that there, there would be some type of negotiation to ensure that, and that would protect tenants, but also uh, to protect some of those landlords. And again, I have to reiterate, I've spoken to many landlords over a period of time, and uh, they provide good quality housing, uh, but it's the underbelly of uh, these uh, landlords. Uh, that, uh, that 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 provide so in some in some cases uh, atrocious uh, conditions and dampness and we done that debate the other day dampness and mold and things like that that you find difficult to deal with. Sorry for going on uh, so long about that, but it's certainly a passion of mine in terms of uh, how you deal with this. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Uh, yeah, I think I think just to come back to your point around. Um, the, the tenants deposit. The tenants deposit scheme administrators are carrying an, an excellent job and they get the deposits, they protect them, they carry out any um, negotiations, any mediation, resolve any disputes at the end of the tenancy around who gets what proportion of the deposit. I think the point that I was trying to make, and I, I, I'm apologies if I didn't articulate this um, terribly clearly, was that landlords will give over the deposit that they are allowed to collect. So if they're allowed to collect one month's deposit, they'll put that into the tenants. Um, protection um, scheme into the deposit protection scheme and it's then where they give notice to quit and if a tenant if a tenant does not then stops paying rent um, for the two months after they've been given their notice to quit there will only be one month's deposit held by the tenants deposit scheme managers then which can be paid over to the landlord in lieu of any of the work that needs done to the property or of any of the uncollected debt and then a, a, a landlord would have to pursue the tenant Obviously, I'm assuming through the courts to get that rent back. That was the point that was made by landlords. It wasn't the tenants deposit scheme works really, really well and and um, has relieved uh, a lot of pressures on tenants and on landlords in relation to deposits. Can can I pick up some of the other points? Mm -hmm. um, so you made one point about the energy efficient uh, energy efficiency regulations that, and I'm I'm really glad that committee members have linked that to the recent debate on damp and mould, and I was really glad to see that, that debate extended and started to extend beyond the social rented sector because it's very clear to us from our research and our surveys that the worst condition housing, the housing and worst condition that people are living in is generally in the private rented sector. And so, for example, I'm also responsible for the affordable warrant scheme and that is available for landlords, but there's really low take up of that by landlords. And I can't help but think that's because um, if you live in a house and you're cold, you, you might look into seeing if you can get affordable warrant for that. But if you're not the person who lives in it, 
even if that person's vulnerable, very few landlords have, have, have taken us up on that affordable one, one scheme. So I, I think it's really important um, that we're doing. We're going to start doing this. It's very important for the health of tenants and it's very important for the conditions that they live in. Um, and I would also want to point out that it's actually really important for our ability to, to get net zero by 2050. There's a, an entire second reason to do this, which is otherwise we have no chance of being carbon neutral by 2050. And the Department for Economies, Energy Strategy and DARA's work on green growth um, has started to engage with how you get retrofitting of our housing stock to the required standard. And if something like 16% of our houses are in the private rented sector, how do you convince landlords to improve the quality, the energy efficiency of houses that they don't live in themselves, where they see no personal benefit in terms of warmth and comfort? Um, and then, Fry, you also picked up on some other things around top-up things like that having to pay a bit of top up. The fundamental reason for that is LHA and the supply of the, the supply of good quality private rent sector houses in and around LHA. Um, so LHA, LHA is um, is not our responsibility. That's um, social security benefit. Um, but fundamentally if if something like half of people as Ailey said are on getting housing benefit and LHA is set at the bottom the bottom 20% rate of, rent, of rents. It doesn't take a genius to work out that there's lots of people who are on housing benefit that the system is expecting them to, to get, to find a house that's rented out at LHA, but there's two and a half times as many people trying to find those houses as there are houses for them. It doesn't take a genius at all. So there are places where the difference between LHA and the market rent is quite large. And um, our minister is very keen to help those people. Um, the most obvious way is we're trying to build more social houses um, because a lot of people who would have been in social housing in the past and maybe whose parents are in social housing um, have no choice really but to go into the private rented sector and to face these sorts of challenges. Um, and that was, if you look back at what social housing was invented, housing was invented for, I mean, it was for the working poor. Um, that was quite explicitly said to the people who were saying it. It wasn't for people who weren't working. It was for people, people who were on lower incomes, working class people. And it was to make sure that they had good quality housing. Um, but we're trying to do more in this area as well. So we're looking, I'm hoping to start a consultation over the summer on something called intermediate rent, which would be subsidized, but not as much as social rented housing. And it would be aimed at those people who really have no chance of getting a social rented house and are maybe working and can pay a bit more, but are in low incomes. And it would be good quality, secure tenure, um, rents would be lower than market, subsidised by government. Um, and this would be a, an entire new housing product in Northern Ireland to help that group of people who are currently sitting in the private rental sector. Um, as many of you have pointed out, you know, it's, and if you look at our documentation around the bill, the explanatory memorandum, it's not the same sorts of people who used to live in the private rental sector. There's a lot of vulnerable people who would have previously been in, in, um, in social housing. And then there's also quite a large group of people who previously would have been homeowners, you know, young people who are the average age of buying a home is well into the 30s now. Um, and so there are people who are renting for a lot longer through their 20s. I, again, um, the member started asking about broader things in housing policy, so I could I could talk for a long time about that. Um, but that was that was a quick summary of some of the things that are going on, Chair. Thank you very much. Um, just, um, I don't have any other members that have indicated at this stage. If anybody else does want to come in, um, if you could raise your hand or let me know. Um, I'd maybe take the opportunity. There's a couple of things that have come out um, since the presentation has begun. Clause 7, 
um, while it does say that the number of increases um, should not be more than once every 12 months, there is no cap on the percentage increase. Um, I'm just wondering on that side of things, um, because we, we still want to have affordable rents for people, and that's mentioned. Clause 8, I'm just wondering, fire, smoke and carbon monoxide, will there be capacity within the bill to enable future regulations to change the requirement? Because as we have the climate change actions going forward, and there may well be a change in how homes are, are heated. Um, we may need to have different health and safety requirements. So I'm just hoping that we're future-proofing legislation. Um, in, in Clause 9, the energy efficient uh, efficiency regulations, again, future-proofing, just taking into consideration um, that those energy efficiency standards can be amended to uh, relate to the climate change. And then... Um, clause 10, it talks all about electric. What about gas? Is there anything about um, gas safety standards or whatever future, future fuels we may be using? And my final question is then on Clause 11, the notice to quit. Does this then mean that if someone has notice to quit by their landlord, that the housing executive will then change the definition of what homelessness is, so the person that that eight weeks will align with their period? Because we have situations at the moment where private landlords give someone a much longer period of time um, to quit the premises. I have one um, case at the moment where the person has been given three months, but the housing executive won't consider them as homeless until it's four weeks within the, the deadline of them moving out. Does that mean then that the housing executive will have to change its regulations to eight weeks to consider that person homeless to provide them with a the house? Because in, in many places, there isn't private tenants, there isn't a private landlord available, there isn't a housing executive house, and there isn't social housing. Um, so just a few quick ones there, if we could rattle through those, um, or if you need to come back to us on that, that would be great. Um, sure, I can maybe take a couple of them, and maybe if David could take um, the last one on the notice to quit and the, the housing executive, um, the potential for the housing executive to change their definition of homelessness, because this is another area for which he has um, responsibility. Um, you're right when you say Clause 7, while it restricts the, the, the number of times that the rent can be raised, there isn't a cap. Um, the Minister has asked that there be work carried out by the Department looking at the levels of rents to make sure that rents are more affordable. So there are several different strands of work that are going on within the division by other colleagues which are looking at affordability issues, um, which will feed into this. But within this particular part of our bill, there isn't an intention at this point in time to have a cap on, on the amount of rent that's charged. Um, for clause eight, then you asked around the um, can there is there the ability for the requirements to change? Yes, there will be within the regulations that as as um, as requirements and industry requirements improve and change that that our legislation keeps pace with that. For clause nine, um, the energy efficiency is the same thing applies. There is provision in this that if if there's a, a change in industry standard, if EPCs move away and there's some other way to, to monitor the energy efficiency of a property by some, some form of certification, that we can move and keep abreast of that. Um, you've, I hope I'm not rattling through these too quickly. Stop me if there's anything. 
For gas, there is already gas safety regulations that exist through the Health and Safety Executive around the installation of gas and the maintenance of gas appliances, but we will be checking those as we develop our, our uh, regulations around the electrical safety to make sure that they fully match. But we, this was something that we looked at, but gas is already, you can only have gas install, installed by gas um, safety um, engineers. So there's already some restrictions around gas that don't exist in relation to um, periodical electrical safety checks within a property. But we, we will check that out um, as we progress this a bit further. Thank you. David, then you were going to pick up on the, the housing executive change in their definition of homelessness. Yeah, Chair, you're, you're entirely right. It does raise the question as to, to what you would want to do about the, the housing executive's um, definition because the homeless legislation, obviously, you either have to be homeless already or um, or about to become, and they have a working day. They, they use four weeks for that. Um, the notice to quit at the minute is 12 weeks if you're in a house over 10 years and eight weeks if you're in a house over five years. So it's not as if it's four weeks, and I'm not ignoring the coronavirus regulations, it's not as if it's um, four weeks for everybody as it is. So that, but it, it would at least need to be thought about. Um, it might make sense to align it or to bring it a bit earlier. Generally, there might also be reasons from a homeless policy point of view that the focus on homelessness has to be on preventing it, not waiting for it to happen. And four weeks doesn't seem an awful long time to prevent it. So there could be another set of policy reasons to look at it again. Yeah, that's brilliant. Um, the only thing I would say um, can is- I, Sorry, can I just add one other thing, Chair? Yeah. On the energy efficiency regulations, you're entirely right. They're going to have to be progressive. They're going to change through, the regulations are going to change through time. We, we aren't going to be able to say, that all of a sudden every landlord has to, um, it would be unreasonable and unworkable to say all of a sudden that every landlord has to, you know, have the highest level of energy efficiency. Um, we're going to have to work up towards 2050 in gradual steps um, to make sure it's affordable and possible and attainable and things like that. So it's going to, it's going to be a progressive thing. And so it's going to change quite a lot, I would imagine, during the regulations. And as you say, what we're heating our houses with is going to completely change the technology available to insulate them things like that is going to completely change. Um, it's going to be a really interesting area over the next 30 years. It certainly is. Right. Um, the only thing I was just going to say, I think something that the committee would be interested in is for those tenants here under 12 months, we've seen through COVID the impact on students, you know, and quite a lot of them are offered less than 12-month tenancy agreements. Um, there are other people like children or young people coming out of care and when they go into homes and um, so we'll look at that when it goes forward folks i'm just looking i looked at the indicative timings for next week and as yet um the first reading for this bill hasn't come forward um, or hasn't been published as yet are you hoping then that that, that first reading will happen if the speaker pr uh, permits it next week yeah so the speaker's office has has the bill and has to be sure it's within competence and then they'll put it on the agenda um, and we've asked for that. Um, we'll wait and see. And we're, then. Hoping, we're hoping. Yeah. Yeah, brilliant. I, I think we're we're in a in a, in a queue of of um, officials from departments who have pieces of legislation they want to be introduced. So we recognise the pressure that there is on the speaker's office and on the assembly, particularly coming up to the to the end of this this term. So um, we're just hoping, but we have to we have to wait and see what provision can be made for us. Absolutely. I'm um, just thinking about this. Um, do you have a time frame yourselves in mind for when you would like the bill to receive royal assent? Well, we, we'd like the bill introduced in this in this current mandate. Okay. 
Yeah, it has to be through this current mandate. So then before the pre-election, well, it needs to be through the assembly before the pre-election period. So we appreciate that that um, is going to take a lot of, it's going to take a lot of effort, not least by yourselves. So a lot of the heavy lifting during the legislative passage falls to the committee. And we'll help you as much as we can with that. Um, as long as it's through before the end of the mandate, then Royal Assent should follow after that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so that would make it about, about May or June. Yeah, so we're, we're looking at final stage, mm -hmm. having to be March, yeah, bef just before the, yeah. the pre-election. Yeah. 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 Yes. Oh my goodness, the committee's going to be busy. <laughs> but please don't, please don't have us up at mid midnight the day before it ends. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine uh, that week is going to be a bit chaotic. Um, folks, I'm sure we will speak to you many times over the next um, while. Um, if we can get this first stage, at least that gets it started and everybody can start to, to look at... at you know, obviously, what's going to happen from there. Um, obviously, as a committee, we'd be keen to see this through as quickly as possible and for the scrutiny to happen. Um, but thank you very much at the moment. We'll look forward to talking to you again, David, Eilish and Conrad. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Just check to see if we have our next. Yep, yeah, thank you. Um, Thank you, members. Um, I'm going to move now on to agenda item seven, which is a briefing by Sport NI on post-COVID recovery. Um, members, before we go um, and, and speak to Antoinette McKeown, um, just to point you to the fact that our papers for this start at page 103 to 103, but I need to be very clear with members that the PA, PAC... Public Accounts Committee has primacy over investigating the findings of the Northern Ireland Audit Office report on the Sports Sustainability Fund, and therefore on that basis we are not to stray into that area. Questions on that topic um, won't be taken today. Today we are, are solely talking to Antoinette about um, the post-COVID re post recovery. Um, PAC have their work to do, we will have our work to do in due course, but for today now we want to see how our sporting bodies are being supported and what the goals are going forward. Um, I see we have both Antoinette McKeown and John Hart from Sport NI um, in our spotlight. I hate saying that to people about their spot being in the spotlight because it's like we have a big light on you. We just we really want to hear um, your plans going forward and how things are going. So over to yourselves, Antoinette and John. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Chair and um, members. Um, and thanks for the invitation um, to um, speak to you this afternoon. Um, we're delighted to have an opportunity to brief the committee on post-COVID recovery work that's ongoing. When we last attended in front of the committee, we were heartened and encouraged by the comments um, that you give us on our work. And we want to thank you for the formal endorsement you gave via the letter um, of support um, to us. I know at that meeting we did cover a lot of detail about how sport has been impacted by the pandemic and I know that all of you are acutely aware of that so um, I am happy to take some retrospective um, questions um, but we want to look forward to updating the committee on how we intend to support um, sport during recovery. Um, for years Sport and I has understood the value represented by the social infrastructure of our sports um, clubs and we know that you know that too. When the pandemic took hold, um, everyone had an opportunity to see it. When government, government needed volunteers on the ground to deliver food parcels or medicines or simply to check on the vulnerable people, sports clubs were there to the fore in this effort. 
And the value of sport, um, we believe, has really been shown during um, this pan, um, pandemic because when something is restricted or taken away from us, from our lives, we feel we appreciate it even more. And when the restrictions passed, it was for us vital that our recovery um, enabled our sports clubs to remain, but it also offers a rare opportunity to get more people involved in sport because we recognise that while sport has huge health and societal benefits, um, it's also got huge intrinsic value, the opportunity to participate, to play, to improve, to belong, to be part of a team, to push yourself, to enjoy and to excel. And I know that many of us have seen the joy and relief on our children's faces when they return to training matches or competitions, showing their value of sport. And so as we start to move um, beyond this unprecedented challenge, we see in Sport NI there's a real opportunity um, to, um, to do things slightly differently. And that's why we want to support um, the front line of our sector, our clubs. And in terms of improving the offering right across the sporting landscape that underpins our principal recovery programme, the Build Back Better programme, which I do want to talk to you about today, and we have £5 million of generous support from the National Lottery over a two-year period. Build Back Better aims to strengthen the sports sector, improving resilience and increasing capability. So this comes after the Hardship Fund, our efforts to sustain the sector, to make sure that it's there to support our communities when we return. And now we're seeking through Build Back Better to improve resilience and increase capability. Through a range of grant programmes, capability elements, Build Back Better will encourage innovation and collaboration to place our clubs and governing bodies in a better position to deliver and consider how they might deal with another unforeseen event, which we all hope will not be the case. Build Back Better is also supported by a range of other services um, to sport at this time, from the extension of our sporting clubs and sporting winners flagship programmes additional support to governing bodies not in receipt of those programmes. We are giving ongoing advice from our return to sport team and we're continuing to support the, our colleagues in D4C and the expert um, panel on return to sport also, um, which has also been um, supporting the Chief Medical Officer and Department of Health. We're doing webinars aimed at raising skills and knowledge and continuous engagement with sports governing bodies so that we continue to remain relevant and meet their needs. I'm conscious that we have a short amount of time here today, Chair, so I would prefer to open the floor to questions um, because um, I want to ensure that members get an opportunity to ask us. Oh, thank you very much, Antoinette. Um, very much appreciated. And the work that's been going on ongoing with our sports clubs, as you say, seeing young people back playing sports, to be honest, has been an absolute delight um, and, and such an, uh, an, out, uh, an outlet for them to um, come back into being in community again. Um, if we bring some members in, I'm not seeing anybody raising hands at the moment, um, so I'll go on ahead and ask a few questions myself. Just to remind members, if you wish to ask questions, can you raise your hand? Oh, there's Sinead Ennis is coming in. Sinead, actually, I'll let you come in first because I know that you're our, our fantastic sporting enthusiast on the committee. So, Sinead, over to you. <laughs> no pressure, Kelly. <laughs> um, no, no, thanks very much. Appreciate that. Look, I, I, 
Um, I appreciate the, the the report in the pack, um, and I do agree. You know, in terms of the our sporting clubs and their response to the pandemic, and of course they were on the on the, on the front line, um, as part of the community response. But I suppose, and I think other members will probably um, concur with me. But um, certainly the conversations I'm having with sports clubs now, it's about looking forward to the future, and it's about planning, and it's about um, you know capacity building and things like that. And one of the the questions we get asked all the time is, you know, are there any capital grants available? Um, because I know clubs are looking to um, improve their facilities now. And, it, it, you know, one of the upsides probably of the pandemic is we have more people looking to get involved now because, as you said, you know, they, they appreciate having that outlet now and having, you know, been able to go to the sports club. So a lot of clubs are looking to upgrade facilities and things like that. So it's just to ask, can we expect uh, any sort of, you know, significant capital uh, grants program coming online anytime soon? I think that's a really good question and um, we are certainly very conscious from the service we carried out um, across the sports sector that um, new restrictions mean that um, there will be um, a potential need for um, um, changes to um, a whole range of facilities and we are currently engaging with um, our colleagues in D4C to identify what capital, um, a small capital um, funds programme um, that um, may be made available through Exchequer and we're also currently working on um, the implementation of our next corporate plan and um, uh, associated with that implementation will be a new lottery programme and as always, we would aim to ensure that there was a capital element um, of that. So what we want to continue to do is work with our colleagues in D4C um, on the smaller grants um, capital programme um, and then, um, as always, add value and additionality to that through lottery, which is a longer term, a longer term plan. That's perfect, Antoinette. I know, obviously, you're saying that's a longer term plan in terms of the Exchequer um partnership on, on the lottery stuff is there would there be any sort of ideas when you expect that to come to fruition um, sorry Sinead, i should have i should have been clear on that um, apologies we are we are working actively working with our with d4c currently because the minister is very keen um, to um, open a, a small um, capital grant scheme um, for clubs so we would hope that in this financial year that would be made um, that would certainly be made available um, and our aim would be for the lottery programme to open in the middle of the next financial year. So when I say long term, I, it's um, the, um, the small grants programme through Exchequer and Department for Communities will be in this year and the lottery one will be in next year. Perfect. That's very clear. Thanks very much, Anton. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ned. Can I maybe just add on to that? Um, the monies, the capital monies that will be av available this year. Um, you know, we're already into July. Now. I was going to say June, but we're July today. Um, will that money be expected to be spent in this current financial year, or can organisations carry over? I'm just thinking about heaven forbid there's another issue with COVID and lockdown, or availability even of builders. Um, to, to deliver any capital. Um, I'm just wondering, will organisations be able to overlap into the next financial year to have that money spent, or will they have to apply and have it spent by the end of March? 
Again, that's a really good question. In terms of exchequer money, it will have to be spent by the end of March. And what our sports development um, staff consistently and proactively do is um, work with our governing bodies, our clubs and our communities, um, community planning partners, to um, identify those projects that are, are ready to go now and could actually have the work completed. And we do that on an ongoing um, basis um, to ensure that we make the best use of the resources that are made available to us. No, that's brilliant. Thank you very much, Antoine. Uh, members, just to remind you, if you want to raise your hand, let me know if you want to come in. But in, before anybody else comes in, um, Antoinette and John, I just want to ask, your paper highlights the, uh, the supporting sport to build back better. The programme is made up of a number of interventions and grants that Odium Leisure Consulting have been appointed to produce a monitoring and evaluation framework based on outcomes. Uh, the focus on outcomes, of course, is very, very welcome. Um, it's something that this committee discusses often in relation to the programme for government. But would you be able to share with us what that um, framework is um, and what the time frame would be for reporting on that? Yes, I'd be delighted to. Um, the, the main aim of the scheme, um, as I said, having, got, um, having first introduced the hardship fund, moving on then with significant um, exchequer investment to sustain the sector, um, we are um, again adding value and complementing that work by um, Build Back Better, which aims to strengthen the sports sector. It's about improving resilience and increasing capability um, within the sector. And two of the outcomes, Chair, that we are um, keen to see is that a strengthened, more connected sporting and recreation centre, um, sector would increase capability, but also an innovative sporting and recreation sector confident with that with our, our new um, ways of working. And we have we have four key capability strands. Um, one is um, connectivity. Um, between governing bodies and their, and their clubs, between clubs and local communities, and between sports themselves. So we're very much incentivising partnership um, here. The other, um, another one is um, mental health and wellbeing. We've already launched our online resource um, early um, in April last year when we recognised the impact of the pandemic. We've actually added additional support to that in terms of free training and, and awareness um, raising and giving people in our clubs and communities the skills and that they need to identify and signpost on people who they, they see to be, um, to be struggling. And the third um, element is um, an element of um, business planning and financial skills. And this is something that the sector told us very early on and um, that they were concerned about um, in terms of them being able to manage cash flow, in some cases, complete loss of income, um, and how they would plan for the future um, getting out of that. So that's part of the capability um, building. Um, and um, our, um, our um, final one was uh, a delivery of a people development programme. And we're doing that using our own um, expert staff, but we've also taken in um, um, I Coach Kids UK, and we're working in partnership with them. And we've particularly targeted um, coach education skills for um, um, coaching um, children and young people because we know that they were one of the most affected during the um, pandemic. Um, but it's, it's a broad range of people development, which includes coaches, officials, um, our volunteers, and maintaining that volunteer base is really, really important. And then on top of that, we have direct awards and um, small grants that, as I said, incentivize partnerships 
but also seek to bring forward the innovation that we have um, been so privileged to see in the sector already um, so that we can share that really good practice and grow it. And that's direct awards to anyone who wants to come in with a really good sporting idea. So that's the range, um, that's the range of new services being um, offered. And the framework we actually put in place in terms of monitoring and evaluation, because like the committee, we're really keen to learn from this and learn as we go. Um, and we put that framework in place so that already um, the monitoring and evaluation company is capturing um, that learning and feeding it back to us so that our, that insight will continue um, to feed into the programme and we'd be delighted to come back um, next. Um, I think we're closing the, the, the final element of the programme in September 2022 with the um, evaluation to be complete by November 2022 and um, we're happy to come back at any time to share some of the outworkings of, of that monitoring and evaluation because we are using the programme for government outcome-based accountabilities model. Absolutely, um, and that's what we need to see because we can count how many people, um, you know, attend courses and do that. But it's actually that long-term achievements that we'd love to see. Um, we're also aware that um, you're working with um, national lottery distributors to consider the development of or to bring forward the development of a new program aimed at tackling rural isolation and loneliness. What about that? How does that fit in? That is that's a, another um, element of our um, that's another element of our COVID recovery program. We have a range of projects, um, some of which I've mentioned um, earlier, including Build Back Better, including the Hardship Fund, the Safe Sports Packs, um, extensions of sporting clubs, sporting winners, our return to, to sport work, our webinars and online resources, and this is an additional tool. Um, in our toolkit, um, which I have to say we are delighted to be working with the Arts Council and our other lottery distributing um, organisations. And it is with a view to ensuring that um, for those most vulnerable in rural communities, that um, particularly during this pandemic, that we do reach out to them uh, and we do put measures in place to support them. I'm certainly aware of um, a number of former sports um, or people who have been sports people in their lives who now are elderly and who would have been very much spectators um, who have been very isolated at home. So it would be lovely to see that coming in. And it just brings me into my final question about spectators. Um, obviously, we've had um, some spectators returning. Has there been any issues with COVID spreading um, with those spectators? Have there been any evidence of that? And do you feel confident that fans will be able to return in larger numbers when the sporting season returns? Or begins, yeah, later. Um, I um, first of all, I want to fully endorse um, what you said in relation to older people who are now spectators, and um, people have lo literally lost a critical element of their life, their daily and weekly lives, in terms of turning up at uh, at weekend and evening and um, sports, and when that's taken away, and it's been the only opportunity you have to actually access friends and other people in your communities. It has been incredibly difficult. Um, and I know, including myself, getting back to spectator sport um, is, um, I mean, I'm really itching um, um, to get back there. In the small number of um, events that actually have had larger crowds, we have had um, really positive feedback in that 
and everything was managed incredibly well. There were no issues. It was testing and um, before going in. Social um, distance measures have been complied with. I think it's because people are so keen to get back that they want to do everything right. And um, we have also been providing with our um, um, partners on the um, the sports ground um, safety. Um, we've also delivered a number of um, advices and, and webinars um, and um, guidance workshops on how to actually return our spectators safely and we'll continue to do that. But no, we've had really good feedback, really positive feedback from those events. That's good to hear because then it gives a, a sort of a, a confidence then to the larger numbers returning, yeah. um, hopefully soon. Um, we never know what our executive will come forward with. Um, I don't see anyone else coming forward, Antoinette, um, to ask you a question. So at this stage, I will thank you for coming along. I'm sure we will ta be talking again soon. Um, our thoughts to you, your team and all the sporting bodies that you engage with. Um, it's lovely when, when I drive over to my, my parents' house um, and I see a hurley match going on um, to see people out enjoying their sport again is just incredible. Um, to see the number of people um, who were walking um, on their own in rural roads to now start to come together in socially distanced walking groups, um, to see that starting to build up again is, is, is lovely. Um, we've missed it so much. But thank you very much, both of you. Um, thanks for coming along today. Not at all. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you. Thank you. And members, thank you very much. Oh, and just saying, just noting, I've seen Pam Cameron's face, so we'll add, we, we have your apologies in for lateness, Pam, so thank you for joining us, and you're joining us on time to, um, we're going to agenda item number eight now, members which is a briefing by the Arts Council on post-COVID recovery. Uh, members, the paper for this agenda starts at page 113, 113. Um, I'm delighted that we're actually talking about after COVID now, and we're welcoming to the meeting today Roisin Madonna, um, Noreen McKinney, Carly Green and Paul Harren. You're very, very welcome, folks. Um, I know you've been through it over the last number of months, um, so thank you for joining us today. Roisin, I'll hand over to you. We'd love to hear uh, your um, thoughts on post-COVID recovery for the arts. Thank you very much indeed, Kelly, and apologies for being um, uh, just on uh, audio today. I've got a difficulty with my device, so bear with me. Um, uh, just to put into a little bit of context, um, we've given you our slide presentation um, in your packs, and I'm not going to tediously go through all of the slides uh, and repeat what it is that you have, but I just wanted to give you a, a high-level sense uh, of what we have been doing um, over the last year or so since we were last in front of your committee. We've run um, nine emergency programmes which we co-designed uh, with the Department for Communities, both in relation to support for individuals and indeed for organisations and um, also uh, health and safety capital programme as well. <clears throat> and roughly that <clears throat> totaled sort of more than £26 million worth of extra funding that went through our organisation for those nine programmes. What we did learn from all of that was that our normal footprint um, uh, of artists that we usually relate to uh, was extended 
to include a vast range of what we call creative practitioners, those who are not necessarily uh, at the forefront um, of work, but often acting in a technical and supportive capacity. There uh, are very, very many people um, who are behind the scenes and we wanted to ensure that we reached out to them as well. So in terms of the emergency programme for individuals, we hoped that it was a relatively straightforward, simple application process. And we only asked people to tell us what their contribution to the sector, the creative sector was, and what the impact of COVID had been on their earnings. We didn't ask them for any evidence of that. The only evidence we asked them for was an independent referee to say, yes, this person is a lighting technician, this person is a DJ, this person is. Um, and, um, you know, we endeavoured to um, have as many uh, webinars and Zoom calls um, as we possibly could, recognising that there would be people who were unfamiliar uh, with public um, grant um, applications and who wouldn't uh, ordinarily have come seeking public support uh, because they were self-sustaining through their own earned income. Um, in terms of the emergency uh, programmes that we co-designed with the Department for Organisations, again, people had to tell us what their role in the sector was and the impact financially um, of COVID directly on their organisation. So what did we fund? <clears throat> well, we did fund, uh, we made a contribution um, to loss of income. We couldn't obviously pick up everybody's loss of income. Uh, we supported um, those costs which we uh, assessed as being inescapable as a result of COVID. There were a few um, items, relatively minor items of equipment that we allowed, and there was an aspect of renewal plans as people look to the future. Um, I have to say that um, the co-design of the programme also um, involved um, uh, submitting and uh, all our um, eligibility criteria, our guidance notes, our scoring templates, uh, and all of that, the equality uh, proofing of the scheme to um, NICFA, to Disability Action, and to the Women's Tech uh, in order to see if they were in agreement that it was an open and fair um, uh, uh, programme, uh, and they independently arrived at that decision once we had given them all the information, they'd scrutinised it. Um, as I said, we, we had Zoom clinics with individuals, we had webinars which we put on our, um, our own website so the people who weren't able to join could actually see uh, the questions that others had asked and the answers that we had given them. And of course, there was a huge uptake um, in our use of social media uh, uh, and um, uh, uh, in terms of its use to communicate the, the messages. Um, and you can see um, really the extraordinary uh, visitor numbers that we got on all the social media platforms. There was a huge degree, understandably, of interest in the programmes that we were running. And in fact, that interest um, in, in us and what we do as an organisation, I think, has been sustained to the current day as people are looking to us for further assistance. To put it into a little bit more of a context, um, our routine support for organisations and individuals is, you know, just under 17 million, and we ordinarily give out um, a total of 557 awards. That's in any one year on average. With the emergency programme, you can see over 26 million 
given out in 3,370 awards, most of which were to um, individuals, which was um, very interesting. That was a huge footprint for us, um, and our engagement with individual uh, creative practitioners has absolutely soared. Um, in terms of... Um, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, sorry, just going to the next slide. Bear with me a second. Um, we fund roughly 100 organisations. Um, you, the committee, will be aware that um, when we were supporting organisations this time around, it, it, it included um, cinema, it included live music entertainment, it included uh, a footprint that we wouldn't routinely have engaged with, uh, and certainly that did present um, us with, with challenges because many of those clients were unknown to us. What did the sector look like before COVID? Well, I, I've already spoken to the committee at the last session that we were at, but just to remind um, that even at the very start of COVID, there were early signs as the lockdown um, kicked in that there were deficits starting to grow. Now, it's very hard to attribute those directly to um, COVID and its early impact. Um, uh, another reason could be that the sector has been so structurally underfunded for such a long time and is running pretty much on vapours, as we say. I've given you some figures in relation to um, how many are employed in the sector that we routinely fund. But one interesting thing to note is I think the trend towards fewer volunteers, but actually volunteers who are working harder and working longer hours, and the sector is very, very reliant um, on those individuals. Um, when we looked at where our impact and reach was, um, over half of the activity undertaken by our arts organisations is in the most deprived two quintiles, with a third taking place um, uh, of all activity in Belfast. And it's a point that I wanted to, to draw uh, upon in a little bit more detail is that headquartered organisations in Belfast actually deliver 40% of their activities outside of Belfast because they do have a regional um, engagement. Uh, and I think uh, it's important to, record, to remember that and also to remember that audiences from Northern Ireland do travel to Belfast to benefit from the cultural, the arts and cultural infrastructure um, in the city, and that's, that's good, that's healthy. So I just wanted to talk about the summary of the challenges the sector is facing. Well, obviously, the continuing COVID situation, the first to close and the last to reopen um, is still uh, a characteristic um, of our arts and cultural sector. While some galleries are open, there remains a huge challenge in terms of both outdoor and indoor events, and the committee will be aware of that. One thing that we are aware of and our early discussions um, with, the, um, with organisations is that COVID has masked the impacts um, of Brexit. And increasingly we're getting evidence, anecdotal evidence, of um, festivals and cross-border touring um, being uh, affected. Um, and that's something that we're going to be keeping a very careful eye on. As organisations move to um, hybrid models uh, and putting a lot of material online. Some did that better than others, but it has revealed there is a digital divide, not only within the sector in terms of capacity and skills and having the actual capital infrastructure to do that in a high quality way, but also differential access as a committee is aware of people to be able to access 
um, uh, online activity, the digital divide as it is commonly called. So we need to ensure that um, there is opportunities for training and skills development and also to continue um, engaging with audiences. Um, we're conscious about the lack of diversity in our sector and we are encouraging um, as many organisations to, to think about how they present themselves, what it is that they're presenting, how they engage um, with their communities, the very diverse communities, and what do their boards look like. Um, uh, and again, that's something that we, we want to continue to um, go uh, move on that journey. There are issues about succession planning in the sector, often driven by um, passionate individuals who stay on for a long time and who eventually um, keel over through sheer exhaustion, and I, I'm, not, I'm not exaggerating. So succession planning um, is, is an issue. We're going to be undertaking an environmental audit um, of our sector uh, uh, to use that as a basis for a baseline and to see if we can engage um, with um, the organisations that we fund uh, and their carbon footprint to improve to improve that as the um, environmental challenges that we're all aware of become more and more prevalent. Big issue uh, for reopening is the social distancing measures. We know that organisations that rely on earned income through ticketing um, will not be fi financially viable if they have to have um, social distancing in situ in theatres and in venues. Um, that's particularly acute you know, for big organisations like the Millennium Forum, the, the Grand Opera House, the Lyric, you know, the orchestra, the waterfront hall, and so on. But not exclusively those. But those who do rely significantly on um, earned income, that is a very big issue. And the risk of opening and not being able to cover, and, and not being simply economic, economically viable, is still um, very, very pertinent. And the other thing that we're acutely aware of, and we've talked to the committee before and others elsewhere, is the is the need to grow the budget for the arts, for arts and culture, in order to ensure there is a better regional distribution. Uh, and that's something that has been you know, brought to bear in all our discussions for quite some time. Regrettably, um, that we haven't been able to ensure a better regional distribution with the limited resources that we have, but that is certainly the ambition um, of the Arts Council and its new board. So just to say um, a couple of things, um, uh, clearly throughout all of this, we've been trying to ensure that we preserve a balanced regional arts infrastructure, um, including retaining necessary skills in order for it to um, work, for it to function. And we're very, very aware, and I am a member uh, of the task force, which is chaired by uh, Ruther Johnson, established by the minister. We're acutely aware of the continued need for individuals immediately in the current circumstances, as well as organisations for emergency support. Um, there, are, there is, apparent, there is um, £13 million of Barnet Consequential um, in the budget to help deliver that. However, we know that that is not enough and the early work of the task force, which will be um, submitting its report, its first report to the minister um, at the end um, of June, um, indicates that it will a requirement for at least double um, that amount in order to begin to meet need. And bear in mind that 13 million has to cover um, culture, arts and heritage. Um, 
So uh, uh, that that's going to be a really difficult um, uh, issue. The committee will be aware that whilst um, places have been closed for a long time, um, buildings uh, and fabrics deteriorate and there is an ongoing need for capital investment. I happened to catch um, Kelly the response from um, Antoinette from Sport and I earlier on uh, and we too are working with the department to identify the quantum of that need. We have a, a, a small capital programme which we will be running uh, this year, um, but the more, the bigger um, needs for refurbishment and maintaining of the fabric of buildings um, is going to be uh, a medium-term issue. In some places, um, there has been a great deal of debate about the need to have indemnity, indemnity insurance to mitigate the risks of reopening and to take the burden of that away from and the individual organisations who are absolutely dying to reopen and engage with audiences, but really can't do so because of the financial um, uh, viability of that. So some form of indemnity insurance could be provided by government that would be helpful. We also need to assess the audience appetite for returning. People have varying levels of risks and there are schemes um, which I know the hospitality sector has used very successfully um, in welcoming um, people back into uh, restaurants and so on. And a comparable scheme um, um, could be uh, valuable, I think, in encouraging audiences to come back through a voucher or, or whatever. There are different um, uh, mechanisms through which you can deliver such a scheme, but communicating the fact that there is one and encouraging people to return when it's safe to do so, I think is going to be a, a big, a big task. Um, I've already spoken about the costs of Brexit and indeed we're um, doing a bit of work with the department in terms of looking at um, the longer term implications of the need to upgrade the digital infrastructure. Northern Ireland doesn't really have a digital uh, infrastructure and uh, skills-wide strategy. This would have to be part of it because whatever happens, we um, firmly are of the opinion that uh, a hybrid model in terms of online activity as well as live performance and presentation will be the way um, of the future. Um, and I think that's me and I'm going to pause there. If the committee wants to ask me any questions or perhaps we could pass on to Carly. Um, we haven't got many more slides. Um, so Kelly, I will um, be guided by you what your preference is. We'll go on to Carly to begin with, and then that gives members time to let me know um, if they want to come in for questions. So we'll carry on with Carly at this moment. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, obviously monitoring the impact um, of the grants and requirements for future need is something really, really important um, for us to try and monitor and measure in a statistical way. So we commissioned um, independent fieldwork agency to run two surveys for us. One, to really monitor the impact of the emergency grants, um, both to organisations and artists, but also to try and determine future stability and needs as well. Um, and the survey was live in May, um, so it's really hot off the press. Um, so, and it was live for under four weeks. Um, and we're really pleased to share, you know, there was a phenomenal response to that, um, which really demonstrates an engaged and motivated sector who really want to share their experiences and who value, you know, the evidence gathering process. Um, because typically an online survey response rates, you know, you, you would get five to 20%. Um, so to receive 45% response rate from artists and, you know, just over half from organisations in under four weeks is really good. Um, 
So we've tested that survey data against the population. Um, so really every single individual and organization that received one of our emergency grants, we can say with statistical confidence that the responses represent that population um, across key demographic variables. So things like rural urban split, local government district and deprivation index. Um, so some of the themes that the survey um, explored, um, we designed this really carefully to ensure that the evidence captured, um, you know, so that we could assess the policy objectives and if they had been met, you know, of the original emergency program. So things like stabilizing viable organizations, um, enabling um, them to survive, adapt, renew, protecting skills and jobs and to adapt and build back better. Um, and really for publicly funded organizations to identify opportunities to increase access, participation and capacity for people most um, disadvantaged and socially excluded. So we designed the surveys with, with that in mind and particularly um, the outcome-based accountability model and making sure that we could you know, measure against government objectives. Um, and so we, we worked very closely with, with NISR statisticians there as well to make sure that the data co collected um, informed that. So um, in terms of artists taking some of the key insights first, as mentioned, um, you know, there is a wealth of data collected um, in these surveys for a number of different purposes, but we've tried to highlight in your pack um, some key insights just to give you an indication of what the high-level findings were. Um, so almost nine in 10 artists strongly agreed or agreed that their immediate financial stress had been relieved. Nine in 10 artists said that the grant protected their career in the creative industries. And over four in five artists said that they developed new skills to help adapt in the new operating environment. And we were able to monitor the types of activity that those, um, that the artists, you know, if there was project related funding, et cetera. And you'll see, you know, the majority, um, the, the top categories mentioned were projects working to address mental health and well-being, isolation and loneliness, for example. So there's lots of other um, things that we're able to capture in the survey. So we know, you know, the level of, um, you know, the financial positions of artists and the lost income. So for example, we knew it was, it was almost 24,000 pounds per person. Um, and we know that almost half of their income in 2021 was provided through grants. And the majority, you know, they stated their grant contributed really towards maintaining their creative skills in the absence of work. Um, and just over half said that they didn't need to seek employment outside the sector. And we can see from the insights as well and how it was designed, you know, the links with other departmental responsibilities. So, you know, 27% stated the grant prevented an application to universal credit, for example. Um, and in terms of preventing homelessness, you know, over half said that the grant, you know, enabled them to, um, to make rent and mortgage payments. So in terms of future sustainability, um, this, is, this is something that came out quite clear that while the majority of respondents agreed that their immediate financial stress was relieved, they were less likely to agree in terms of their medium and long-term financial security. Um, and really just something else that jumped out to me um, that I think really demonstrates the resilience of, of the sector um, that has been able to adapt and develop creatively. <clears throat> Um, including developing skills, because you know four and five artists are saying that they've been able to do that given the significant challenges, um, and I just I think that that that's astonishing. Um, so just to say, wealth of data there. There's lots of analysis that we can do um, given the sample size, um, which is great. Um, so moving on to organisations, 
like the artist survey, there's, there's a wealth of data that sits behind it all. And you'll see um, in your pack some of the key insights that sat behind some of the, the, the high level findings. So the majority stated that they used funding as a way of maintaining engagement with audiences. So that was around two and three organizations. Um, four and five organizations strongly agreed, agreed that their immediate financial stress was relieved. And 85% of organizations said this, that, that their scale just would have reduced without the funding. And crucially, um, similar to the artists, 95% of organizations have stated that they still need support to guarantee the long-term financial stability. Um, and just over half said that they were able to, you know, while they're able to continue trading into 21-22, there, there's uncertainty about its longer-term sustainability. So we're able to look at future programming and, you know, some of the most popular methods selected were, were events, um, you know, in, in venues. Um, digital remote engagement is definitely something of the future um, and outdoor events. So there's definitely a willingness there to, 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 to get back. Um, so um, in terms of audience appetite, we do try to measure, measure from an audience perspective as well to try and capture you know, the population's um, appetite and how they consume the arts through COVID. And towards the end of 2020, we, we wanted to understand the broader population's engagement and consumption of the arts. So we commissioned a population survey, and you can see it clearly shows the importance of the arts on personal enjoyment and well-being. Um, and really, you know, the role that the arts could play post-pandemic. You know, people have really missed the opportunity to go to cultural events and venues. They've had a greater appreciation of the role that the arts can play, and they really recognise the positive impact um, on their mental health and well-being. So, and they're maybe more inclined to get involved um, in the arts now, um, as they've been able to do so um, online or via social media. And something um, that that really stood out from those insights, most notably was um, people with disabilities were more likely to, to have engaged as an audience member or attended an arts activity since lockdown. Um, and that is really something that we, we all want to ensure we maintain post-pandemic. So I'll, I'll pass over to Ro Roisin again, just to finish, um, to finish off. Um, <clears throat> thank you, Carly. I mean, we've underscored this point before with the committee and I don't want to, you know, repeat what I said earlier, but it is, to do with the health and well-being of those who work in the sector and that's something that um, the task force um, is concerned about and will be uh, bringing forward um, suggestions as to how, <clears throat> how the support needs of those who work in the sector may be better served and I know it's something that the executive and Minister Swan yesterday was talking about um, extra resources for a mental health and well-being strategy, uh, which is absolutely essential for the wider society. But given the prevalence of suicide ide ideation in the creative sector, we believe that you know additional measures focused on their support are going to be necessary. So, um, really, just to finally say, um, you know, this committee has been very supportive in the past um, of helping us. Um, secure the Barnet Consequentials, which we were, you know, really pleased to have been able to help deliver to our sector, but that the impacts continue to remain really significantly, particularly for individuals. And there is immediate pressing need that we are aware of. And with the phasing out of the job retention scheme and the self-employment um, income support scheme, um, those needs will, will be even more palpable. Um, 
we're all conscious of the impact of COVID on, on our vulnerable communities um, uh, and the committee is very aware of that. But really, um, in the immediate term, we need more money to be able to sustain our sector and the individuals who comprise it through this pandemic. And we would ask the committee to support us in that challenge and indeed the task force when it concludes its deliberations as well. And that ultimately, um, we need to start now um, engaging uh, in the development of a, a medium and longer term cross-cutting strategy for arts and culture and have that embedded right across the executive as a whole so that everybody has ownership of that. And that is one of the um, jobs that the Minister has set the task force to do and we're pledged to play our part in that. So thank you, um, Kelly. Thank you, Chair. Thank you very much, folks. Um, you know, uh, just, I'm just looking here at the slide on page 139, and I think it just strikes me how much we have missed the arts and how much we will depend on the various you know, pathways of the arts as we come out of COVID and how much that the arts will help improve society's mental health. But when I'm looking at a slide here that says that 60% of people in um, the creative sector have had suicidal thoughts, um, and 16% have actually attempted suicide, with 37% planning for suicide. It just shows the incredible impact that COVID has had on the mental health of the people who we'll, we will be looking to to help society's mental health um, as we as we come out of this. So uh, it, it's it's quite a stark slide, and, and thank you for the evidence, um, Carly, as as you were able to prove earlier. The, the input um, from the research that has been done. It's factual, you know, fact-based information that we can take forward. Um, but thank you for that. Um, the, can I just ask, first of all, um, just I'm going to, as my, there's a few people have indicated to ask questions, but I just wanted to ask, has there been anything rushing through uh, the task force that has said that the Barnet consequentials of 13 million coming forward will be for the arts? Because I'm aware that it's unhypothecated. That means it can be used by the executive for whatever they choose. Um, has there been any commitment so far from the department on that 13 million? Um, not um, formally, but our understanding is that the 13 million will be used for culture, arts and heritage in the way that it was previously, um, Kelly, though we have yet to ascertain from the department the extent of the footprint, because some of the organisations that we supported in the past, such as cinema, for example, are reopened, so they may or may not need um, support. And I'm also aware that um, there are discussions between the Department of Finance and the Economy and Communities in relation to commercial organisations and their continuing needs and how those might be dealt with um, in a more coordinated manner this time, rather than um, coming you know, through the Arts Council, um, uh, having organisations that we were not um, familiar with because they weren't part of our portfolio. Nonetheless, we did support them, and thank goodness none of them um, have fallen over. We assessed their needs, and they got their, um, they got their support. Um, so uh, we are, uh, the, the task force will be, is arguing on two, two counts. One, whilst welcoming the possibility of the 13 million, uh, which, as you say, is not necessarily hypothecated at all, but hopefully is earmarked for culture, arts and leisure. And then secondly, saying, that is inadequate. 
and the first focus has to be on individuals. We have made our annual funding awards this year to our regularly funded clients and we hope that will give them a degree of stability um, and ability to survive until the autumn when we hope very much that we can get an organisation's emergency programme up and running at that point. But our initial focus is on the individuals um, in the sector who are hurting very, very badly at present and have not really had any source of income from the 1st of April and we're now on the 1st uh, of July. Absolutely. Um, and we know, of course, from today, the furlough scheme changes that puts a little bit more pressure on top of more pressure for organisations. Um, I have a few questions and then I'm going to go first to Pam and then to Fra. But just um, to finish off my questions, I, I wanted to ask you about um, retention of staff. Um, the arts as a sector, a very wide sector, uh, has been under such pressure. Um, and we know that other sectors um, have lost quite a, an extensive number of staff. Um, how has that, um, you know, obviously from the survey, Carly, um, how successful retention has been for performance for uh, and staff for venues? How is the, the sector going to be able to cope um, if the executive say, here's a date, you can reopen um, from this date? How's the staffing levels? Do you want me to answer that, Roisin? Yes, Carly, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So um, I suppose what's came out in the survey findings is the, you know, a lot of organisations have, have agreed to the statements about retaining staff. Um, and we do have further detail in terms of numbers and things like that that um, I just wouldn't have to hand now. But um, I suppose what we can take is the grant enabled them to retain as many staff as possible. Um, but yes, it's something that um, you know, with further analysis, we're able to, to try and understand the numbers behind that. I suppose the only thing I would add, um, Kelly, is that the sector is characterised not only by people who have a designated you know, particular role and skill, but it's also characterised by people who portfolio work. So they will do casual work as well as their own work in order to you know, their own, use their own particular skill, but they will work elsewhere. Um, and you know, that was what we were concerned, that measures we needed to introduce emergency measures to ensure that they didn't just go and work in retail or whatever else they, they ordinarily would have done in bars or, or but that they retained their skills for deployment in the sector. But, but that's the nature, I think, um, of our creative practitioners is their portfolio income. Okay. Uh, that's yeah. I, sorry, go on ahead. I was just going to say, um, just to, you know, the questions that we would have asked would have been around, you know, um, how many staff, you know, hours increase, hours reduced, how many staff were placed on furlough and how many had been made redundant and how many were, were, were newly employed. So we do have a wealth of information there that we're able to, to analyse and, and you, you know, be able to understand that further. Could, could I just add, Chair, um, just to follow on to say that many of our larger venues, like the Lyric, for example, would employ a lot of freelance staff, as, as Roisin was describing there. So back to the, and obviously they, they couldn't be retained. Um, so under our grants, the, you know, the core staff in venues, um, thankfully, and with use of the furlough scheme, were appropriate as well. But all of those freelancers who, you know, would be dependent on our on our venues for um, continual work throughout the year, that just hasn't happened, and that's why we've seen such a huge impact on our individual emergency programs and why those are so vital. 
Absolutely. I'm just a bit, little bit concerned that, as you said, first to close, um, one of the last two open, and if people are able to get employment elsewhere, it may take some of those staff away who are needed to bring back our, the wealth of our arts sector. Um, we see now, for instance, in, in the hospitality sector, a shortage in staff. Do you expect that to happen? Or, you know, if you were to get the word from the, the executive to reopen, would you have sufficient staff for those venues, for the productions, um, to, to be able to open and, and carry on? Or will you have the same situation as hospitality, where there's a, there's a skill, well, not a skills shortage, but a people shortage? I suppose um, Noreen has, uh, perhaps um, not obliquely, but has um, made the point that if we can get um, if, we, if we support our organisations through our annual funding programme and they in turn are able to um, use that money to you know, put on performance and use the, the techies, the freelancers that they have on their books, at this stage they haven't reported to us uh, as individual organisations that they cannot reopen because they have hemorrhaged um, the freelancers, so they've hemorrhaged elsewhere and those skills are not available, those people aren't available, as you said. I think there's a broader point about the wider pool of creative practitioners which may have shrunk, though the individual organisations and the freelancers they have had a direct relationship with over an extended period may still be maintained. But as Carly said, we'll have to analyse those figures in more detail. I think I would share your concern that the wider pool may have shrunk um, and that clearly um, there's a concern as well about new entrants coming into um, our creative sector maybe being put off by the fact that it is a precarious employment situation for them and that the retention of existing talent is one thing but the development and the career pathways and the engagement of new talent refreshing our sector is something that I, I, I would be concerned about. Me too, Mushin, unfortunately. I'm, I'm going to move to members now and bring in Pam Cameron, MLA. Thank you, Chair, uh, and apologies for my, for my lateness today uh, to committee. Um, I wanted to declare an interest at the outset um, that I'm uh, Secretary on Little Willow Productions, which is a, a production company. Uh, who've done a bit of theatre work in the past. So I do have, while I'm new to this committee, I, I do have some understanding of the challenges uh, around the arts sector, and it has certainly been an incredibly difficult time for, for all those involved. Um, so just to thank the, the panel for their presentation uh, today. Uh, I think it's important that, um, that the executive is able to support the arts sector fully, uh, and even actually myself and Paul Valerti met with the um, live musicians at their Carson's statue today as well, and heard from them. And uh, very one thing that kind of sticks in my mind is as they told us that many people who were playing instruments today, they were playing borrowed instruments because they actually had to sell their instruments to cope over this pandemic. I think that's very sad and really demonstrates how very, very difficult it has been for many people. Um, I've spent the last 18 months on, on health committee, so understand from the health side of the pandemic, um, you know, how, how difficult it has been for everybody to manage and keep everybody safe and try to support 
those who have been unable to, to earn their wage. Uh, I think that's been an incredibly difficult time, but I think we do need to have a balance going forward. And it's important that uh, like Starts Council have the, have the, uh, the right um, funds to be able to support those artists moving forward. And it is really important that um, going forward, that uh, the industry is allowed to operate in a viable way. Uh, because I think you, even if you were able to open, for instance, theatres and uh, clubs or concerts overnight, you also have that confidence issue as well going forward as well. And many people who are involved in the arts sector would be of uh, an older age group uh, who may well feel very vulnerable and maybe uh, may have been choosing for a lot of the last year um, or so. Uh, so I think there will be much work in terms of confidences and getting people back out. But certainly that's very striking, and, and Kelly did touch upon it, that the slide uh, around the 60% having suicidal thoughts, that really does demonstrate um, the, the need to look after both our, mental, uh, both our mental and our physical health, because our mental health impacts on our physical health as well. So I think it's really important that the that art sector are supported um, as much as possible going forward. I don't really have a question for you. I'm happy to, to listen in and to hear what you have to say today and thank you for your presentations. Thank you. I'll just double check. Fra, you had your hand up earlier, but it's down now. Are you okay? Or Yes, sir. Uh, sorry. Um, uh, I think, uh, first of all, I would like to, to, to thank the delegation uh, for the, the presentation. That was very extensive and very informative. And I think it, it, it clearly lays out uh, the, the difficulties and problems that that uh, the sector not only face but uh, will, will will face in the, in the future. I think both the future uh, and uh, Palm have clearly laid out that there's some really uh, difficult uh, slides in there in terms of mental health, and uh, that that needs to be taken forward. In fact, I was actually listening watching a. I think it was the news last night, and there was a thing on from New York, and uh, somebody mentioned employment, and uh, that uh, many places are struggling, that's businesses, theatres, uh, because I, I don't think people have got the confidence uh, to go back into the type of employment that uh, actors and musicians and uh, those who work in the sector well, would have went into. And uh, is, is that a factor? And and uh, what, what, what you have been talking about? But uh, 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 the, the the this morning, uh, obviously there is some really really difficult uh, the, the times ahead. I think uh, for 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 everyone, I think it's a time that uh, we we need to rally around. But see, in the terms of the mental health, and this is a very just uh, and certainly in terms from where I'm coming from, very important. Uh, and I know that the, 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 that there was that uh, the, in the survey you asked specific. Questions around suicide about mental health. Uh, was there any uh, were the, the arts council able to reach out and provide the help uh, that people required to take them over this? Because I think uh, more recently, what you're starting to hear is uh, the medium to long term impact uh, that COVID has had, not only on those in, those suffering uh, from long COVID, uh, but a whole wide range of people from children right up. Uh, that, that found it difficult during the lockdown. So thank you, Ian. Thank you very much for the presentation. 
Thank you, um, um, Member McCann, and congratulations on your recent marriage, um, which was profiled in the paper. I just wanted to say that personally. Um, to answer your question, um, I, I think the points have already been made. The sector that works with those who are most vulnerable uh, in the front line and engages with really hard to reach communities. Um, you know, our, uh, our, our sports, of course, uh, but also our sector, the arts, and yet those who work in it have, you know, real uh, mental health uh, needs themselves. We've supported organisations such as um, uh, Theatre and Dance NI um, put on a programme, um, you know, for individuals who feel that you know they need additional support and they can't access it um, in an appropriate way elsewhere, um, that members of Theatre and Dance NI, that that service is provided. And we're keen to extend that to our umbrella organisations um, who are member organisations. We have a number of those, including University of the Atypical, for example, working with people with uh, disabilities and indeed the Visual Arts Forum. So, we want to be able to put in a package of measures through those umbrella bodies to help those who are the members who feel they do need somewhere to turn to. And I think that's going to be, again, one of the recommendations contained um, by the task force without wanting to steal their particular thunder. Um, but we've been pushing that uh, forward as, uh, uh, I think, a practical measure that needs to be introduced. All right, Fran. Um, Roshan, can I just ask again, can you clarify, when's the task force due to report? Um, at the end of June, we have, um, sorry, we have a further meeting of the task force tomorrow. The draft recommendations are, uh, have been circulated for comment. There has been extensive engagement through a lot of focus groups. Uh, uh, run by members of the task force, engaging uh, in a much wider footprint than the, you know, the, the relatively small numbers of, of 20 plus who are on it. So there's a lot of work that has been done. This will be the sixth meeting, uh, to the best of my recollection. And um, we're at the final stages um, of um, uh, drawing up the recommendations on behalf of the task force to present to the minister. I expect that will be done in the course of the next um, week or so. Um, we know that there is urgency um, and one of the things the task force has been very, very um, focused on is getting out emergency money to individuals immediately. Um, and we hope that we will be able to play our part again in that, Kelly, uh, by opening up um, an individual emergency response programme again in, um, in the months of, well, in July, we're now in July. Um, given how many individuals you were able to help the the previous time, Roisin, um, it certainly yeah. proves that the Arts Council can do that. Although in the middle of the summer, when I'm sure your own team are exhausted, like the rest of us, um, I, I don't envy you. Um, I don't have any other members who have indicated, unless somebody wants to give me a shout now, but um, that was quite a detailed um, presentation today. It's very much appreciated. Um, the evidence that you're providing to us is, is very in-depth and very, very um, useful for us going forward. I think I'll just ask while you're present um, to the, the rest of the committee to say that we will write to the minister to ask for um, her 
you know, what she's decided with the recommendations and what she's going to be taking forward because as a committee, we don't just scrutinise, we're here to help. And if there's recommendations, especially if they're coming forward from the sector, from the task force, um, that we can um, help the minister with, um, we would certainly support that. But for now, folks, this might be the last time we're speaking to you before summer recess. Thank you so much. Um, we look forward to hearing about that potential grant funding coming forward. Um, and certainly um, share the information with us so that we can get it out as quickly as possible. I know that there's an awful lot of people on your social media channels and others on the website that, that are, connect, are connecting with you, but if there's anything we can do to reach out to those individuals and organisations so that they can get help as quickly as possible. But for now, thank you very much, um, and thank you very much for your presentation today. Thank you, thank you for the support uh, from the committee in, in the work. It's much appreciated. Thank you. We could bring all the members in just for a little second. Um, it's just to say to the members, are you happy enough then that we write to the minister just to ask, um, you know, once the minister's obviously had time to look at the task force's recommendations, um, what actions that she will be taking forward? And in that letter, perhaps we could ask the minister about the 13 million Barnet consequentials and how much of that will be able to go to the um, to the Arts Council and to help the, as Roisin has said, I think it was culture, arts and heritage, how that's being broken down and, and how much of the 13 million is going there. Is everybody happy with that? Yeah, I, I agree, Chair, on that and conscious that that's us writing to the Minister, who in turn will be writing to the Executive seeking to secure that 13 million. So I just wonder, is, is there uh, maybe Mayor and also <coughs> to the Executive as well, making the same points? Good point, Mark. We can certainly do that too. So we'll write to the Executive Office um, to make the case that um, the arts sector, this, this Barnet consequential, um, we appreciate it will be an executive decision, but the £13 million would go a long way, but it's also not enough. So um, we can maybe do that as well. Members, we're going to take a very short break now before we get to our next um, um, item, which is item nine, which is the briefing by Hospitality Ulster. So can I ask you just to take your ease to until a quarter past twelve. Thank you. It's and we're back live again, committee. Thank you very much. Um, now we're going to move on to agenda item nine, which is a briefing by Hospitality Ulster, again on post-COVID recovery. Members, the paper for this agenda starts at page 146, so that's 146, and I would like to welcome to the meeting Joel Neil. Very welcome for coming along, Joel. Um, Joel, over to you. We're in your hands. Good morning, Chair. Thank you very much. Good morning, members. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to, to speak with you today. I will say from the outset that you're probably... Uh, expecting Colin Neil at this point, uh, someone that you're probably very familiar with. Uh, so I will try my very best to, to fill those considerable shoes. Um, obviously, you have your, your briefing paper there, um, and we've obviously been working very closely with you over the past 15 months. Uh, but for the purposes of context, Hospitality Ulster uh, is a membership body comprising of businesses from all over the hospitality industry in Northern Ireland, um, has existed since 1872, um, obviously representing members' needs and supporting them, uh, and obviously working also with industry development. Um, we thought we had faced challenges before. Uh, we have faced significant challenges before, but combine those and it's probably nothing close to, to what we've been through over the past 15 months uh, as an organization and as an industry. Uh, to lay out a bit of the, the sort of background uh, as to how the industry was looking pre-pandemic, 
hospitality in Northern Ireland was the, the fourth largest private sector employer. Um, we supported 70, 72,000 jobs, um, 54,000 of those were direct with the remainder uh, in the supply chain. Uh, our annual turnover was 2 billion. Um, and, and we outperformed Northern Ireland, the, sorry, excuse me, the Northern Ireland average across a number of indicators, uh, including uh, turnover, including gross value added, and indeed a uh, number of jobs. Uh, we were critical to the agri-food sector as well. Uh, we were a purchaser of a third of Northern Ireland's agri-food. Um, and whenever it comes to tourism as well, uh, our, our industry accounts for two-thirds of that tourism spend. Uh, one in three hospitality jobs are supported by tourism. Uh, the future of our high streets is hospitality and leisure. Uh, I think a, a common theme that has run through the past 15 months is that a lot of the, the previous uh, issues and the previous things that were coming down the line facing our industry have just been accelerated by the past 15 months. Uh, you know, you go to consumer habits, people have uh, nicer living rooms, back uh, garden bars, they're accustomed to shopping on Amazon, uh, all of that good stuff that we've all been experiencing. So there has been a, a sort of uh, acceleration of issues that, that we were already working on and trying to, to address before. Um, the hospitality industry is vital for social cohesion and I think that's something that has been laid uh, very bare and brought into sharp focus uh, during the pandemic. Uh, we are the heart of, of social life, of rural life, of village life. And, uh, and that's really been missed uh, from, from speaking not only to business owners who know their their regulars on, on first name terms, uh, but also by uh, the people in those communities uh, that, that have that kind of place to belong and place to go, uh, place to, to kind of uh, see each other. Since COVID then, um, unfortunately, it gets a little bit bleaker uh, from the 23rd of March 2020 until the 21st of May of this year. Uh, our food-led pubs were only open 119 days, and, and those 119 days were accompanied by severe severe but necessary, obviously, restrictions, um, which impact their, their profitability and their sustainability. Uh, from the 23rd of March 2020 until 21st of May of this year, also, our, our non-food pubs, I'm not going to use the phrase uh, that has been used over and over again, I know it's uh, quite a device one. Uh, our non-food pubs were only open for 23 days, which is, is, is a staggering statistic. 90% um, of our industry staff were on furlough during that time. Uh, again, as I said before, we have been working closely with yourselves and we're extremely grateful for the support uh, and, and the ability uh, to to be able to work with you. I'm grateful for the government support that came down the line that, that no doubt helped the industry and, and helped to, to save a great number of our businesses. We obviously ended up with greater support than, uh, than counterparts in, in GP. Um, however, in 2020, uh, 1.4 billion of losses and uh, in the first quarter of this year, 500 million already. Um, Every day, uh, it costs one million to keep hospitality premises closed. Uh, not one billion, as your briefing paper may have said. Um, so, onto the, the hospitality Ulster recovery plan, which you obviously, hopefully, have, have received as part of your pack. Um, our recovery plan is part of, of a UK-wide plan, uh, working alongside our counterparts in UK hospitality, in the British Beer, Beer and Pub Association, and the British Institute of Innkeepers. Um, the Northern Ireland plan uh, is built on data. Uh, it's built on robust statistical research. Uh, and that has come through engaging with economists, strategists, and indeed directly engaging with our members and the Northern Ireland industry. Um, it's a plan where, where the industry, hospitality, Ulster, government and local authorities all play their part, working in partnership. Uh, and again, to go back to a previous theme, that's something that, that was, was necessary pre-pandemic, that, that ability to work together for the greater good. But again, just because of what we've been through in the past 15 months, that's brought, been brought into even sharper focus and is, is more necessary um, than ever. The plan itself uh, is built around three pillars, rebuild, rethink and revitalize. 
uh, and I'll, I'll not take you through the entire plan. Uh, I know you've got a, a busy, uh, a busy itinerary today. Um, but in short, uh, rebuild is, is obviously to build the industry, um, safe, viable, and sustainable reopening. Which um, I'm grateful to say that obviously our, our businesses have been open for a number of weeks now, uh, and, and hospitality Ulster have said that you know repeated lockdowns and uh, you know tightening of restrictions, uh, it's, it's not sustainable uh, with with the, the current capacities and the current restrictions that our businesses have. Uh, they're 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 barely making enough to, to cover uh, their their overheads. Um, so a, a sustainable and a permanent reopening is essential for the long-term survivability and sustainability of the industry. Uh, the second pillar, rethink. That's rethinking the way we do business, and that's all of us. Um, consumer habits, as I've already said, um, they were changing before. They have continued to change at an accelerated pace. Uh, we have to meet the needs of that as, a, as an industry, uh, as uh, our, our businesses need to continue to, to uh, diversify, to offer uh, the experience of hospitality. Um, it's a line that we often get laughed at for, but nobody goes out to a hospitality business, to a pub or whatever, just for alcohol or just for the food. The product is the, the thing that brings you there, but the, the experience and, and the social interaction is the true reason why you would go out. Um, so we need to continue to change to meet the needs uh, and, and to, to adapt to the landscape and the way things are now. Uh, and that also comes down to the policy side as well, changes in policy decisions, and as I've said, partnership working. Uh, the third pillar is revitalize, uh, and that's critical, revitalizing our communities. The hospitality industry is going to have a key role in bringing life back to local high streets, tourism and our economy. The hospitality industry and the high street uh, are intrinsically linked in terms of regenerating those public spaces and, uh, and, and generating the footfall that we need to, to recover with all of those businesses. So in terms of rebuild, um, the, the Hospitality Ulster Recovery Plan sets out a clear roadmap of policy interventions uh, which support a timely, safe and viable reopening of the hospitality industry. Uh, this recovery plan is a living document. It's something that we're going to continue to work on and continue to update as the landscape changes, as uh, the restrictions change uh, and just as we move into the future. So um, I, I'm pleased to see whenever I read through it a couple of months down the line that a number of the, the points made were already down the line with them. You know, this was created before reopening had happened and before there was that indication of sort of sustainable permanent reopening um, with, with restrictions that match the current level of infection and the current risk uh, to, to the general public. Um, collectively, these interventions will kickstart and rebuild a sustainable industry and create a climate for future investment, job creation and ultimately growth. Uh, the rethink pillar, uh, I've discussed it already, but the, the Okay, first cliche of the day, the new normal uh, will inevitably change the way we do business in the future. Um, so emerging uh, consumer trends, purchasing habits, policy changes, they're going to lead to a reshaping of the hospitality offer. Um, we must articulate the impact, uh, the challenges and the opportunities for our industry uh, and support our businesses to, to uh, address them going forward. And then revitalize. Um, the pandemic has obviously reinforced the vital role of hospitality and, and the role that it plays in our economy and our communities. Um, a strong, resilient hospitality industry will revitalize our communities, both urban and rural, our tourism economy. Uh, creation of jobs and, and stimulation of local spend uh, are going to be critical going forward. Uh, we as an organization and as an industry, we're committed uh, to working collaboratively with our key government and local partners, uh, ensuring collective recovery plans work together uh, and ultimately to drive meaningful revitalization revitalization of the economy uh, for that whole community. The wider UK recovery model within which our plan sits, um, the, the UK government have recognised that whilst there is an overlap, hospitality is, is so much more than, than tourism. 
Um, the UK government have established a hospitality strategy steering group comprising of four ministers uh, from across departments, from uh, business, energy uh, and, and industrial strategy, uh, from culture, media and sport, from the treasury and also from agriculture, environmental and rural affairs. Um, tourism recovery does remain with DCMS, um, so there, there's no du duplication there. Um, so as I say, I'm, I'm not going to get too forensic on our recovery plan. Um, we have obviously been, uh, been working with you uh, extensively, almost day and daily for the past 15 months. Um, but the, the key actions in the short term uh, is to rethink hospitality. That's, that's everyone. It's from, from government, from local authority, right down to us as an industry body and indeed our members uh, and our businesses. Um, key action is to establish a hospitality strategy steering group. Um, similar to that UK model, hospitality in Northern Ireland has no home in government. Uh, we, we cut across all departments, uh, obviously the, the, the committee this morning, uh, but also the economy uh, and finance. Uh, Pre-COVID, as I laid out, hospitality was the, the fastest growing sector in Northern Ireland. Um, it has been hit, hit first, hit hardest, and, and obviously has also suffered uh, among the longest uh, in terms of the pandemic, just because of the nature of our business. The nature of our business is social interaction. It's why people experience the hospitality industry, and it's, it's why people go out. Um, and even when we have been open for those uh, short margins throughout the pandemic, it's been under heavy, heavy restrictions that have limited um, our, our viability as businesses. Um, hospitality uh, needs direct engagement at ministerial level across relevant departments to continue to, to rebuild from this crisis. Um, it's heartwarming for me after having been through the, the, the past 15 months uh, to now walk through Belfast City Centre where I live and, and to see businesses open again and people out seeing each other safely and enjoying themselves. But make no mistake, we are, we are at the start of an extremely long road back to any type of pre-COVID uh, levels and, and industry recovery. In the midterm, uh, key interventions would include establishing a hospitality sectoral council, um, a dedicated hospitality team within the Department of the Economy, uh, partnership with local authorities, uh, a council of councils. It's that integrated working that's going to push us forward as an industry and contribute to that recovery. Um, harness the hospitality industry's potential to create jobs, support local high streets, economic growth and communities. Uh, staffing and creation of jobs is going to be one of the, the, the biggest issues that we face beside restrictions and beside the immediate threat to our businesses. Um, a food and drink strategy, uh, a circular economy for hospitality. We've, uh, we've often been called a bit of a leaky bucket, the hospitality industry in Northern Ireland, uh, and it comes right down to everything, including packaging, waste, recycling. Uh, and also that circular economy is going to be more important than ever. You could be eating in a, a village pub uh, somewhere in Northern Ireland, but your chicken could be from Holland. Uh, we want to continue to stress a circular economy and the growth of that experiential side of hospitality here to ensure that our businesses are sourcing locally uh, and, and providing that local experience and then also in turn uh, helping our suppliers and, and helping the rest of the economy. Um, a, a skill strategy for hospitality uh, obviously to address the skills shortage that we had before the pandemic it was one of the biggest issues that we worked on uh, trying to implement uh, you know frameworks within the, the colleges uh, apprenticeships and, and also create jobs the skill strategy going forward is going to be more important than ever uh, and it's, it's not just uh, the the, the touch paper sort of uh, issue that people talk about is chefs. There's a, a critical shortage of, of chefs and, and kitchen staff in the industry, but it's right down, to be honest, to through to bar staff, waiting staff, absolutely everything. Um, there, there's a massive shortage of that that we'll need to address. Uh, so, as I've said, members, the new normal would inevitably change the way we do business in the future, uh, and that comes down to legislation and policy changes. Uh, recognizing the regeneration impact of hospitality and supporting the social value uh, of hospitality. 
that's uh, really, in a nutshell, I suppose, where, where we are today. Um, it is encouraging that the things are continuing to get better. The signs are there that, that we will hopefully continue to, to loosen the regulations in a safe manner uh, to, to support our businesses and hopefully get them back uh, to long-term viability and profitability. Thank you very much, Joel. Um, you covered an awful lot there, but thank you very much for your presentation. I'll just say to members at this stage, if you're looking to come in and ask Joel any questions, can you raise your hand? Um, so your system, please, Joel, to start the process off, I have a few questions for you and then I'll turn to the rest of the members. Um, your paper mentions, as we would expect it to, the losses incurred as a result of the lockdowns. Do you have any figures at this stage um, in terms of how many hospitality businesses have had to permanently close? So, yeah, this is something that we're working on at the moment. Uh, we're working in partnership with the CGA to, to gain some of that data. They obviously, <clears throat> excuse me, have been closed and it's been hard to, to kind of get a picture of it. Uh, I think, uh, sort of informally speaking, the, the feeling at the moment is that we're not truly going to know the casualties until we are reopened with minimal restrictions and as close to a prior normal as possible. We're not going to know until we look around and just to see who's missing. Uh, so, currently, we have no firm figures on, on uh, business closures. Uh, there are a number, a number, unfortunately, that I think are still to come. Maybe businesses that are trading now or businesses that have remained closed that haven't declared that they're no longer viable. Um, but unfortunately, I think it's something that we're, we're going to get used to in, in the coming months and over the next year. Um, but look, as, as, as we develop that, that data and as we begin to gain a, a picture of, of what the industry looks like in terms of losses, uh, we will certainly share that. Uh, with yourselves. That would be useful because I have to say from me driving around my own constituency none of them are closed um, so it, it would be good to hear that because obviously I'm only seeing one area. Um, before I talk about the, the recovery plan um, there have been very clearly reports um, a lack of staff following the lockdowns. Um, I just wanted to ask you during the licensing and review of, of clubs legislation that we have been through there was some concern about the level of pay for staff and terms and conditions for staff who work in the industry so what plans do you have to attract people back into working in the hospitality industry given the fact that we know as a committee that the higher number that work in, in the industry would be that age group of people a younger age group who now don't have work, um, but why are they not returning and what, what is Hospitality Ulster and your members doing to try to improve maybe the wages and the terms and conditions? Yeah, so Hospitality Ulster Chair as an organisation, uh, we, we've uh, formed a, a skills and an employment working group, uh, working with a, a number of representatives from departments, from the colleges, uh, to, to try and address this. Um, again, it's another one of those issues that, that was quite important pre-pandemic um, that, that obviously has been accelerated. Uh, there's a on the wider scale, there's a job to do in terms of positioning hospitality as a viable career and not just a stopgap job. But on the flip side to that, there's also a responsibility with our businesses to make it a career, a viable career, uh, and that comes down to you know conditions, appropriate pay. Um, we're obviously in the very, very early stages of reopening after a significant period of closure, um, and it's, it's going to take some time for our businesses to to continue to, to work, to, to be profitable again, to get back on their feet. Unfortunately, the overheads uh, for a hospitality business in Northern Ireland are higher than anywhere else in the UK and Ireland. We pay the highest business rates out of anywhere uh, in the United Kingdom. Um, our supply costs 
are higher due to the, the, the sort of uh, structure of, of supply here. Um, uh, and unfortunately, those costs are, are higher due to the lockdowns and have trickled down. Um, there, there isn't a hospitality business that wants to underpay or poorly treat their staff. Uh, it doesn't help anyone. It doesn't help the businesses and it doesn't help the employees. Um, I, I agree with you, Chair. It's, it's an extremely important issue. Uh, and one that we're continuing to work on, uh, that that working group is addressing uh, apprenticeships, frameworks. Um, it's trying to give the, the power to the business owners themselves uh, to go in and look for staff to, to address that shortfall. Um, but, but there is going to be a transition period as everyone just gets back on their feet and begins to operate again and tries to find a, a level of sustainability where, where everyone is, is, is treated properly. Yeah, that would be good. Um, it's it's because I'm hearing on the ground, um, you know, people would go back um, and work in the hospitality industry if they could get, you know, a fair wage. You know, they can't afford to actually work in hospitality at the minute. But there's also been we know we're going through a bit of a boom at the moment because people have been so desperate for you guys to be back and to get out there and to be in their local pubs and hotels and restaurants. But there have been, and I think you you can agree with me on this criticism of the prices now being charged by some bars and restaurants. Are these prices here to stay or are they a short-term reaction to the restrictions on hospitality? And would you be encouraging your members to reconsider pricing structures as soon as they can? Because what we don't want to happen is we have a boom now and then two or three months down the road people are saying, I can't afford this, you know, I can't I can't be go to my pub as the hub because it, the the prices are are so much higher now. Yeah, I'm obviously aware of, of the discussions that have been going on uh, around around pricing in the industry. Uh, what I would say is Hospitality Ulster has, has no direct involvement uh, in, in terms of pricing uh, and, and cannot and would not advise members on, on how to set price points. Uh, in fact, as far as I'm aware, uh, and don't quote me, I'm not a solicitor, um, it's, it's actually against the law. We, we would not be allowed to, to address that in terms of competition law uh, in the same way that, that businesses themselves uh, can't get together and, and publicly set a, a pricing structure. No, um, I didn't ask about a pricing structure. It was just that there has been a significant hike in prices. Would you be talking to your members? Is this a short-term thing or is that going to come back down to normal again? We're just a bit worried that the pricing that's happening at the moment is actually putting customers off. You know, is there anything that's been addressed there? Yeah, look, it's a valid point. Uh, our, our businesses are, are trying to, I mean, no one wants to set their prices prohibitively. No one wants to set prices that will discourage people from coming out. It's, it's counterproductive. Uh, and our businesses are smart enough to know that, that you know, it's, it's not about trying to make as much as possible in the short term and, and then put off people coming back. Again, uh, the, the prices in our industry are, are set based on the cost of our supply and the cost of our overheads. And, and unfortunately, they are uh, astronomically high. They were beforehand. Uh, and they are now. There's also the conversation that, that people have become accustomed to obviously uh, buying products, buying alcohol, whatever it may be, uh, at off sales uh, at the supermarket and, and sort of consuming that at home. Uh, and that the, uh, it's an adjustment period of, of being out and about again and experiencing kind of prices that are relative to the experience of, of the hospitality business. Um, you know, as I've said before, um, the, the hospitality industry, uh, I would believe this quite strongly, it's, it's not about the product itself it's about the experience and um, so the, those businesses work extremely hard to provide a, an experience to their customers uh, and, and prices are, are set 
accordingly based on those experiences. And I'm aware, I mean, it's the same with everything. If I go to buy a pair of jeans, there'll be somewhere that's cheaper, somewhere that's more expensive. And, and it's a choice for, for me as, as to where I go. Um, uh, the, in terms of, of industry pricing, our, our businesses know um, that, that they want to continue to encourage people back. Uh, you know, permanent and sustainable reopening does not just fall uh, with government in terms of setting restrictions and setting the legislation. It also falls with our businesses in terms of offering something that, that is affordable uh, to their demographic. Yeah, no, I, I hope that that is the case because um, I know recently from me going out and trying to support local businesses and others, um, you know, paying a third more than you did, you know, in a previous not lockdown period um, was, was heavy going, but um, we want to keep the businesses and keep them afloat and, and obviously customers to be back there, which is why I was glad to hear about the, your recovery plan on rebuild, rethink and revitalise. Um, it's good to see that you're part of a wider UK plan, but have you costed the recovery plan in terms of what would be required from government? I wouldn't have any cost to hand chair just at the moment. Uh, that's a conversation that I can have with Colin, uh, who would be obviously the main representative with Hospitality Ulster in terms of engaging with our counterparts in GB. Um, so unfortunately, no, don't, don't have cost to hand, um, but there may well be that, I, again, I can provide. Please, that would be useful because when we're going to talk to the Minister of the Department, um, even on a cross-cutting theme, it would be handy to have that sort of figure so we know what ballpark we're talking to. We've been talking today, for instance, to the arts sector, um, who were able to identify that the £13 million, you know, that they have in Barnet consequentials potentially coming forward isn't enough. Um, it would be good to get that sort of... Um, sadly, Joel, we're not out of the woods yet with COVID. Um, and I hope, we all hope... Um, that it's not going to result in any further lockdowns. Can you just spell out to us how what the impact would be if there was a further lockdown, not necessarily immediately now, but say the autumn time? Uh, our, our overheads are, are uh, you know, I've said it over and over again, uh, you know, pre-pandemic, um, the, the overheads in the hospitality industry were extremely difficult in terms of uh, profitability for our businesses. Um, the, the past 15 months uh, in terms of just how, how much we've been closed and how much we've been restricted. And then with reopening critically, you know, we're open, but we're still under the most severe restrictions of, of any businesses. Uh, you know, the, the overheads are the same, whether your capacity is, is 100% or whether your capacity is 50%. Uh, so uh, it just doesn't make sense. You, you, you cannot, you physically cannot uh, generate the kind of turnover that, that you need if, uh, if your business model is set for a certain number of people inside your premises and that's cut to, you know, in some cases, 40%, 30%, just based on the layout and the size of some of our businesses. Um, so even reopened right now, uh, our businesses are not profitable. Uh, they are trying their very best to get by and to continue to, to work towards a time when those restrictions are safely lifted and they can begin to, to rebuild towards long-term sustainability and profitability. So to have another lockdown, uh, again, I have to say extremely grateful for the, the government's support uh, and, and, and the fact that that was there. It, it has saved businesses uh, and it has uh, been a lifeline to our industry in terms of having something to reopen post-pandemic. Uh, post um, 
but another lockdown would, would simply be devastating. Um, I said to you at, at the start of, of my presentation that uh, even in the first quarter of 2021 so far, we're, we're at 500 million losses. Uh, and, and last year, obviously, 1.4 billion in losses in 2020. Uh, our, our industry's turnover annually is 2 billion. So, um, uh, you know, again, just like I'm not a solicitor, I'm not an economist, but um, it, it would be unfortunately devastating to have to experience another lockdown. Uh, Obviously, the, the question there is what support would still be available. Uh, you know, we, we don't know. Um, and it's, it's all hypotheticals here. Um, but, but it would, without doubt, cost more jobs and it would cost the closure of more businesses, sadly. Um, just as we earlier in, in, in today's committee, we, we've spoken to sport, we've talked to arts, and we're talking to yourselves about this COVID recovery. Um, it would be useful, um, just that stark message, you know, so if, if those funding, if the, the funding schemes that were in place, if there was another lockdown, they have to be in place again, because from what you're saying, your members just would not survive again. I'm, I'm imagining there's an awful lot of bank accounts are right down to the limit now, and the profit, the operating profits are desperately needed. Um, certainly, the change to furlough to, from today, you know, the rates, everything coming forward all helps. And just checking here to see any other members want to come in. I'm not seeing any hands raised at the moment. Um, oh, sorry, there's Mark Darkins coming in. Um, Mark, carry on now. Go ahead, Joel. Thanks, Madam Chair, and thank you, Joel. Uh, no, thank, thanks for the presentation. Uh, Kelly's covered a, a lot of the stuff there, and she, she used the very words I was about to. We, we aren't out of the, the, the woods yet, sadly, but, but hopefully we get there, and the industry has faced unprecedented and often apparently insurmountable challenges, I'd say, over the lockdown period and will face challenges as we emerge from it uh, into the future. Now, as regards to the pricing policy, I think Kelly's right to raise that, and I appreciate entirely that Hospitality Ulster or, or anyone doesn't have a role in, in helping fix prices or making uh, businesses reduce them, but I do think it's important that businesses are cognizant of the fact that they don't want to kill the, 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 the goose that laid the golden egg. And I think it, it, it's great at the moment and people are just getting back out and uh, braving going back out for the first time and, and probably forget how much a pint cost or, or whatever cost the, the last time uh, that they were out. And they're, are that happy to get out? They won't generally mind what they're paying, but that honeymoon period will, will, will wear off soon. And, and we have to be careful, I suppose, that people don't then retreat to the the many backyard bars and, and, and that that have sprung up um, over the past 15 months. I was just wondering, in, in terms of difficulties as well, I know a lot of establishments went to great effort and expense to establish outdoor areas, and that uh, prompted by uh, restrictions and various relaxations of them. And uh, I think some of those attempts... Uh, well, not attempts by the publicans, but, but attempts sometimes by the, by the authorities to, to monitor what was being done appeared to be inconsistent across different areas. I don't know if that's something you're picking up from your membership as we go forward, because I'm conscious that there's stuff that maybe was, was built and, and not being used until now. Uh, then, then there are issues around residential impact and things like that. I, I was just wondering if much of that's coming back to use. 
Yeah, good afternoon, Mark. Nice to speak to you again. Uh, yeah, it's it's something that we're extremely aware of. Um, it's it's probably a reason why uh, Express during during the point of interview briefing and um, that that collaborative working and that comes from cross departmental within the Northern Ireland Assembly and it also comes uh, in terms of a, a joined up message in terms of local authorities. Um, as I said, a partnership with local authorities is going to be critical going forward. Sort of having a council of councils uh, so that, that we can be clear and, and communicate sort of where we are uh, and to make sure that those local authorities are, are broadly on the same page um, with regard to how to implement restrictions. There were uh, a number, and I'm hoping that this is, you know, uh, as we all are hoping that, that these are problems of the past and, and that we don't have to, to go back to, to worrying about how to implement uh, tighter regulations or, or implement, you know, lockdowns, all, all that good stuff. Um, but there were a number of, of our businesses that, that invested in outdoor areas uh, with a very short turnaround because they, they were, uh, as far as they were concerned, that was the only way that they were going to be able to reopen and to try and address some of their massive losses uh, during those lockdowns. Uh, unfortunately, the, the way it panned out, that a lot of local authorities came to them extremely late, uh, in some cases just a, a day or two days before they were due to reopen, and told them that those outdoor spaces um, weren't going to be, be able to, to be reopened. Uh, and I'm not looking to, to point fingers or lay blame anywhere. Uh, you know, there may have been issues in terms of the, the way the premises was laid out in terms of being too covered in. Um, but unfortunately, you're in Northern Ireland here, and despite how beautiful it is over the past week or couple of weeks, uh, let's not forget why the place is so green. Um, but there, there's obviously uh, an issue there in, in, in providing a clear and consistent message from those local authorities to our businesses, which means there's no reason or no excuse why our businesses shouldn't have to have, uh, shouldn't be told with a very short notice period that, that the outdoor area they've invested heavily in uh, is not going to be reopenable. Um, it's also the same in terms of during the lockdowns. Again, I hope this isn't a problem that we have to face again, but uh, our, our businesses scrambled as quickly as they could to implement those, uh, those the, sorry, those measures of mitigation within their, their businesses putting up screens, doing absolutely everything that, that they could understand that they needed to do. Uh, and then obviously there were times whenever there were, there were lockdowns that happened quite abruptly. Looking at the Christmas period, for example, there were people that invested to try and open for that period and uh, put those measures in. Uh, and it's also the supply chain. It's, it's you know, we don't have product in a warehouse. We're not like a, a clothes shop or whatever else where you can just stack the shelves, turn your lights on and go. There's cogs that need to turn from the very top of supply of food and beverage right down to the customer. And that, to be honest, it, it, it incurred massive losses for our industry, for a number of businesses who understood that they may have been able to reopen for a, a longer time scale. And unfortunately, that came down to a couple of weeks. Um, and it's no one's fault we're dealing with a virus here. There's no textbook uh, and, and there's no playbook on how to address it. Sometimes the, the goalposts will move. Um, but I think the best way we could combat that is just to have a joined up, clear and consistent message throughout the Northern Ireland Assembly and the various departments, the hospitality stretches across uh, and also between local authorities that they're implementing as consistently as possible. Yeah, it's even the, the police as well, where you've one organisation that you know, seems to have difficulty having a consistent interpretation of stuff right across uh, Northern Ireland, which is, I suppose, confusing and very frustrating uh, for many publicans. You, you spoke there about, the, and, and I concur with the fact, people aren't going out just for a drink, they're going out for the experience, and hopefully, oh, sorry, <laughs> getting used to, to the old new normal and the kids no being old again. But... Uh, like it's about the experience, and hopefully today we'll get some positive news from the executive in, in terms of live music and that. I was just wondering, uh, do you have much feedback from members about 
how much the, the, the lack or the continued prohibition of live music they felt might have been impacting their business or their ability to attract people in. Yeah, I listened to your, your last evidence session with, with some interest. Some of those uh, statistics and some of the things mentioned are staggering. And obviously, uh, the, the arts industry, uh, not, not only from the performance side, but also from the engineering side and, and all of that, uh, it's intrinsically linked to, to what we do. Uh, and, and its survival and its, its prosperity is, is directly linked to, to our own. Um, you know, there, there, are, there are both, you know, and I'm talking sort of in terms of personal experience here and conversations that I've been having, but, you know, the, there are Belfast city centre pubs that, that would be known as live music, you know, venues or, or be centred around providing that entertainment. Uh, places that would probably be among the highest in terms of turnover, in terms of footfall in Northern Ireland, and they're down to a reduced opening of like Thursday through Sunday, uh, just simply because people aren't coming out. Uh, the way I talk about hospitality being experiential I think uh, personally speaking that the challenges that I think our businesses are currently facing is that they are in the business of social gatherings and of enjoying entertainment and of enjoying conversation and meeting people but a lot of those unique elements that that contribute to why people go out to hospitality businesses have been stripped away and that's been obviously through necessity you know the regulations aren't there for fun they're, they're there because uh, of the best data that we have available um, but it still stands to reason that if I'm going out to a hospitality business uh, with my wife, uh, I'm shown to a table, I have to sit at that table, I can't walk around, meet people, I can't see any entertainment. So I, I still do it. I love our industry, I love using it. I, 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 maybe a little too much sometimes, but uh, it stands to reason that that uh, I, I could just sit at home and have a drink uh, and sit and talk to my wife as opposed to being out. And, and, you know, it takes away a lot of those individual unique experiences that makes our industry what it is. And, and personally, as a massive live music fan, it's the main reason why I would have been in our businesses. I, I would try and catch as much as I possibly can. Uh, so yeah, look, I, I understand I'm not giving you hard facts and data here because we're still in the very early goings and a lot of that data is still being uh, produced. Uh, but but it, you know, it, informally speaking, it's... it's uh, uh, an extreme challenge that, that we're trying to, to address right now and we hope very much that, that we can provide that entertainment as, as soon as possible again No, no, me, me too and, and another issue that's, that's more relevant to, or well it's another department that has responsibility for it but it, it, it is extremely relevant to, to this department and this particular uh, subject is that of transport and getting people home from pubs or, or, or restaurants at night, I mean, we've already seen a, a huge reduction of, over the last number of years in terms of the number of people entering the taxi industry and an increase in the number of people leaving the taxi uh, industry. And I know there's a DFI committee motion, I, I think, on, on this issue uh, coming soon to see how, I suppose, we, we, we can encourage more people uh, into the industry. But is this a problem that has been reflected to you by, by your members at all. It, it, it's another thing that might, or, or I think inevitably will, put people off coming out if, if, if they don't know what time they'll get home or if they'll get home at all. It's, a, it's another one of those those issues, Mark, to be honest, that existed pre-pandemic. Uh, and I have to say, with, with thanks to, to the committee, we obviously had the, the final reading of, of the Liquor Licensing Bill this week. Uh, and I do think that, that those sort of measured 
modernizations will go some way to addressing that. You know, our licensing structure beforehand, uh, if you were out in an evening economy business, you were uh, you were all leaving and, and being pushed out onto the street, essentially, um, with half an hour drinking up time. In many cases, you're sort of having the drink that, you're, that you have in your hand taken off you. And, uh, if, if you're in, say, a live music venue or a pub, uh, and everyone's being pushed onto the street at the, at the one time, I think that those modest relaxations that, that uh, passed through the Assembly this week will go some ways to addressing that in terms of public infrastructure and in terms of even policing. Uh, you have now the option to sort of go out whenever you like and to also leave whenever you like. Uh, and it may actually, well, I think personally it will, uh, reduce the stress that's on, uh, you know, taxis uh, and all those other businesses that, that are part of our evening economy. Uh, there probably is a conversation to be had in terms of public transport infrastructure and, and producing uh, something that, that, that would be uh, available for people uh, leaving in the evening, but uh, there are obviously budgetary uh, considerations there and, and viability considerations that that are a conversation for for you know Translink themselves and, and another another agency. But um, very much so, I think I think we've gone some ways to address that this week. Uh, thankfully, I'm, I'm grateful to see that that bill you know get over the line, uh, and I think it will help in the long term. Would any of your members, sorry, Joe, that you're aware of? put on transport themselves that, that you're aware of or have something in place whereby that they might leave people home? Um, it's not unheard of in more rural areas where, where you know, the community all knows each other that if, uh, say, there's a, for example, an elderly lady or an elderly gentleman is in a, in a pub, obviously has had a, a pint or two and, and obviously can't drive. Um, I'm aware of stories of, of uh, you know, owners, uh, landlords, licensees, uh, taking them home, you know, at the, at the end of an evening, or, or running, uh, running them back and forward. Uh, that that speaks to the the community impact of, of our industry. Uh, you have to remember that outside of, of the main population areas of, of you know Derry, Belfast, of you know Lisburn, if you go out west, Oma, it is uh, the vast majority of it. It's small communities and it's rural and it's small town, and the, and those pubs are hubs for for people in that community, especially people who are older and maybe don't have uh, a social structure around them. Their social structure is built on being able to go to those places and that, that as an example you know uh, being getting a lift home it's, it's nothing that I would be aware of would be official or, or something that you'd pay for or anything like that it just speaks to, to the community role that, that our businesses play uh, I, I'm aware that not only you know that we would have got a lift home pre-pandemic whatever else uh, but even during the pandemic I know that, that some of our members in more rural areas they were actually ringing rounds their, their locals or sorry their regulars excuse me just to check how they were doing there were people taking around bags of shopping to them all that that kind of stuff. Um, apologies for the slight divergence from your question there. Uh, the, the answer is I'm not aware of anything official, but I'm aware that it definitely does go on as part of a, a wider sort of community aspect that, that, that exists in our industry. Bags of shopping and bags of beer nearing its expiry date, <laughs> I imagine. <laughs> but no, thanks a million for that, Joe. Nice to speak to you. I'm going to go to our next two people, Karen Mullen and then Shania Dennis. So Karen, over to yourself. Thank you, Chair, and thank you, Joel. Um, uh, it's great to get the presentation today again. Um, uh, yourselves and Hospitality Ulster has played a key role supporting the sector, which has been one of the worst hits. And I suppose just to pack up there, it was really interesting um, listening to both Kelly and Mark um, and given the evidence sessions that we have been going through over this past number of months. But in terms of the nighttime transport, I, I know that I suppose here in Derry, um, you know, pre-pandemic, as you say, it was poor. 
but now it's non-existent, either private or public. Um, uh, I do know when Mark was chatting there, I just heard um, over the last week or so of, a, of, a, of an owner he owns a number of establishments, has put on his own transport and it's been very, very welcome. It is actually, um, just speaking to some friends at the weekend, they were saying, you know, they were telling me about it and encouraging me to go and use it and it has brought them back because they know they're getting home um, so and they spend the night there. Obviously, in terms of the music industry, you know, uh, the sooner we get that back, the better, um, because everything that you have said as well, you know, you're just seeing it, it's flat at the minute, you go out to try your best. Um, I suppose uh, the, I would share the, the same concerns around the price, pricing structure as well, Joel, um, and it's back to um, what Mark and Kelly had said, we had went through the evidence session and particularly because of the pandemic and that, you know, very clearly in the committee, I was saying our party's position was that we prefer uh, people to be drinking in a safe and controlled manner. And we believe that the best place to do that is, is out in, in public places and not at home. And in terms of the prices, I would just have a real fear when you talk about transport and pricing um, that, you know, OK, it's not a great summer. But it, it, the weather is better. Um, but if this continues under the winter, um, that more and more people will stay at home um, and will not go back out. So I think that is something that the sector really, really needs to take on board and look at. Um, I've seen here in, in areas the last couple of weeks, you know, it's been great. We have got a really good um, increased number of visitors. I suppose uh, because of the, the situation in the 26 counties on the border here, we've been able to locally capitalise on that and the trade is, is thriving. But we want those people to come back. We don't want them to come and say, God, you know, whatever. And, and we also want locals to be able to be out again. You answered a wee bit of my question, Joe, when you were chatting to Mark there. But what I wanted to ask was, and I know it's a wee bit early yet, but in terms of the recovery um, and just this past week, um, uh, some of the feedback that he um, has received in terms of the licensing legislation and how that will play a positive role in terms of recovery. Yeah, thanks, Karen, uh, and I agree that these are, are important issues. Uh, and again, as I said earlier, um, I don't think there's a, a single hospitality business that, that wants to price prohibitively. Um, I think I think the the, the pricing and, and, and all of that, that other stuff that, that sort of um, that, that makes up uh, our, our business, uh, our businesses, excuse me, and, and their, their business decisions, uh, it's something that, that they will have to address. They, they need to price relative to their demographic and, and the target customer base that, that they're trying to to bring in. Um, but, but as I say, Hospitality Australia hasn't and, and doesn't have any direct uh, conversations regarding pricing and, and, and never has. Um, it's, it's obviously down to the businesses. Uh, I, I think they're smart enough to know, I know they're smart enough to know that, that, that they're not trying to, to hype prices up and, and make a while the sun shines for a few weeks before things get bad again. Uh, their, their mind at the moment is it's purely on survival, trying to keep their business open, their staff employed and their staff paid. Uh, throughout the, this period of, of being open under severe restrictions. Um, in, 
terms of the, the licensing bill, um, I've been with Hospitality Officer just over 11 years now. Um, it's gone by in a flash, but these are conversations that we were having you know, from day one that, that, that I arrived at, at the organization. Uh, the, the licensing bill uh, is, is a long time coming. Um, uh, and, and again, I, I think the, the, the committee for, for their broad support, I, I can't even count the number of times that, that I think uh, between myself and Colin, we've, we've sat before you and gave evidence with regard to the bill. Uh, they're, they're, they're modest modernizations that, that bring Northern Ireland, uh, in my opinion, in line with the, the rest of the UK and Ireland and, and indeed uh, Europe. Uh, they're, they're, they're a long time coming. They will support us. They'll make us more competitive in terms of being able to offer more choice to the customer. It's more choice to the customer and it's more flexibility to the business owner in terms of tailoring their offering. Whether you're a late night venue that has live music, you have that little bit extra kind of time uh, or, or, or even just whether you're a small uh, country pub or, or a small village pub that now can, can maybe open late on the weekend uh, without the provision of entertainment. Um, it's little things like that. That, that will go such a long way and just making life a little bit easier uh, for our businesses. You know, we're, we're a very heavily regulated industry and, and rightly so. Hospitality also recognizes alcohol is, is a controlled substance and should be treated as such. Um, and, and it goes back to what you're saying. That I would much rather also uh, that the, the people, you know, consume alcohol in, in a regulated environment where the, the licensee has a duty of care to the customer as opposed to unregulated in their own homes. Um, it's it's the, the, the license and legislation being passed this week is, is a landmark day for the industry. Uh, it's, it's sad that it has to come at the tail end of, of the greatest challenge that we've faced probably since the Second World War. Uh, and, but they, they, will, they will certainly go a long way uh, in, in contributing to, to industry recovery. Thank you, Joel. Thank you, Chair. That's me. No problem. Sinead, we have you coming in now. Thank you. Sinead Ennis. Thank you, Chair. Can you hear me? Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, so my connection, I dropped out there for a time. So apologies if this has been covered. And uh, the bit that I did here and the members' contributions, I do concur with um, in terms of the, the licensing stuff as well. And I'm, I'm glad to hear um, your comments, Joel, in terms of being a landmark day, because I think that's what that's what, what, that's the impact we wanted the bill to have. Um, in terms of the, you know, the entertainment, and I know the minister is bringing those recommendations to the executive today. Um, we do want to see live music return because, you know, it's while it's great to be out and about, it's it's a bit soulless, and we need that that live music to, to bring that back. But my question is in terms of now this I've heard this anecdotally, um, and I've heard whispers from some other members as well in terms of the issues in recruiting um, chefs. So I know some of the big hotels locally, some of the, the restaurants are having a real difficult time recruiting chefs um, in and retaining them. So is that something that's maybe localised or is that a, a more widespread issue? And, you know, what, what are you guys hearing about that, that issue in particular, if anything? Yeah, thanks, Sinead. It is. You're 100% correct. It's, it's one of the biggest issues that we're currently facing, to be honest. Um, there, there was a, a massive skill shortage pre pandemic uh, and it was obviously wrapped into to Brexit coming down the line. There's my first 
B word of the day, but uh, Brexit w was making it prohibitive uh, for our guys to, to employ chefs and um, that the, the were foreign nationals just in terms of the, the, the category of visa that they had. Um, it, it wouldn't have been financially viable to, to bring uh, people from, from other countries over uh, at the, the rate of, of, of salary that, that they would have needed. Um, this is a, a much wider conversation that, that, that we've been trying to address for, for a number of years now in terms of positioning the hospitality industry and the food and beverage industry as a viable career from the ground up. Uh, and, and that's from, from school level up. You know, it, it needs to be uh, it needs to be displayed and, and, and addressed as, as as much of a viable career as any other. I think it has a little bit of a PR and an image problem uh, in the minds of maybe parents, in the minds of maybe younger people. Um, but but there is a fantastic career to be had in this industry. Uh, people obviously talk about anti-social hours and, and, and uh, whatever else. Uh, but the, the fact remains that there there are uh, people whose lifestyle, the flexibility that the hospitality industry offers, will actually suit. Um, but yes, look, it's uh, there's there's no quick fix to this. Uh, it's a long term issue that needs addressed. You know, there there is a massive shortage, in, in chefs in particular in Northern Ireland right now. Um, it's something that we're trying to address in terms of apprenticeship frameworks, in terms of getting more people in to qualify, uh, and in terms of offering sort of apprenticeships with our businesses as well. Um, uh, we, we do have uh, the skills uh, and. And careers uh, working group that, that are currently trying to address that and just to try at the moment to get a sense of just what that shortage is right now because obviously we're, we're looking at an entirely different landscape than when we were initially shut down in March of 2020 and um, it's something the hospitality Ulster is, is currently trying to to uh, uh, to, to address, to, to get a, a sense of, of just how bad it is uh, and, and it's something that we're going to be continuing to work on urgently in future. No problem Joe, that's uh... It's. Uh, I got the impression it wasn't just localized um, to the South Down area here. So you know, it's good to see that that you guys recognise that, and there's the skills and, and careers working group looking at it as well. And I suppose it will be de de cross departmental in terms of um, the economy and um, education as well. So no, that that that's fine, Joel. Thanks very much. Thanks, Sinead. Thank you very much, Sinead. Um, just before we finish up this session with you, Joel, um, I just wanted to check with you. Um, insurance, we know during lockdown um, the case was taken that the insurance um, industry had said that COVID wasn't one of the reportable diseases and that I, I, I'm not sure, forgive me, which court it was that overturned that and said that wasn't the case. Any of your members having difficulties accessing business insurance due to that change? No, I think they're, uh, and again, uh, I'm, I'm not going to profess to be an expert in terms of high court cases with, with regard to, to insurance and, and the virus. Uh, there, there was a, there was a, uh, it was a judge after that, that that a lot of those payments actually were valid uh, and that there would be payouts. Um, I can only speak uh, anecdotally in terms of what I come across here in, in the day and daily in, in the office, uh, and there have been very few, if any, issues with regard. Uh, to insurance or, or any claims that were made that, that, that weren't settled. Um, so, uh, to be honest, I've heard very little. It's not something that would be massively high on our radar in terms of issues that are critical at the moment. Yeah, I'm just very aware. We, we have all suffered the whole thing about not available in Northern Ireland. Um, so, it's one if you could keep an eye on it and let us know if there's anything comes out oh. on that because businesses are paying their, their premiums, they're paying their insurance, and um, now that that decision has been taken, um, when they need it, and we don't want them to have to need it, but when it's needed, the insurance industry needs to pay out. It's just we're interested to see if there's practically 
any difficulties for your guys. But I'd just like to thank you on behalf of the committee, Joel. I know the work that you guys are doing and you're trying your best. And my goodness, what a year it has been. Um, we're hoping that not only do the businesses all stay open because COVID has finally um, been controlled, um, but that there's no further lockdowns to the members. Um, pass on our, our best wishes to Colin, of course. He's welcome in front of the committee anytime, um, as are you. But thank you very much for that. And we will certainly work with you as we try to get our businesses back after COVID. Thank you very much. Yeah. My thanks again to all committee members and yourself, Chair, just for, for the ability to work with you over the past 15 months. Uh, massive challenges, but very grateful for your support. Um, I'm, I'm sure we'll speak again soon. Thank you. Thank you. Just if we can bring everyone then into the spotlight. Um, we, because we passed through uh, uh, some of our business earlier, members, we're actually jumping now to agenda item 12, which is any other business. Um, just before I come to yourselves, we had the fantastic news yesterday that was um, put out by the department, by the minister, about the changes to special rules for terminal illness. I was just wondering, um, committee, if you would like to get a written update. I know it's something that I'm interested in because the Minister will be bringing forward legislation, it looks like, within this current Assembly mandate. And I think it would be useful for us to know, given what we've heard about other legislation coming forward, we're going to be a very busy committee um, to find out when the Department are thinking about this, these changes coming through, because it's primary legislation, um, or whether it may have to be accelerated passage. Um, we're not just a scrutiny committee, we're here to help the Minister too, and I think we all support the Minister in the changes that she's bringing forward. Are you happy that we maybe get some sort of a written briefing from the Department, whether that's may not be in time for next week, but for as early or as quickly as we can get it? Yeah. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. I think it's, it's good news, so we want to be up to date on that. Anybody else have any other business? No? If that's okay, then um, just agenda item thirteen. Then all um, the next our meeting our next meeting is Thursday the eighth of July. That's next week, and at this stage, while there's no briefings or anything coming through, we should be meeting at ten a.m. Um, in room twenty nine and on Starleaf. Um, and hopefully, it will be ten a.m. You can all have a bit of beauty sleep and sleep in next week. Um, but um, we will see you all then next week. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.